What's going on? This is Big Jim Daddy, and I am just dropping an update to check in and see how you are doing. And I guess more importantly, to let you know how I am doing. I'm feeling a little bit mellow this evening. It's the end of a work day. It's around dinner time, so the grocery stores I might go pick up some food at are very crowded at the moment. I'm in that zone where I'm not working, but it's still a little bit too early for me to venture out because the, there, are, there are crowds out there. So killing some time unwinding from the day uh, by talking to you guys and just seeing what the hell is up. So I've got a few things I I could cover. Yeah, I'm feeling much more mellow. If you listened to my last episode, you might have concluded that I was on coke. I felt very, very amped up, and I was intentionally just running through uh, my bullet points that I had in my head pretty quickly. Yeah, uh, still unwinding, still decompressing, so this will be a little bit more evenly paced, probably easier to follow if you're if you have it on as background. I never quite know exactly how how to pace these things. Probably slower is better because that probably means you can put it on while you're driving or walking. Whoever you are that is not listening to this. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't have any... Uh, don't have any delusions that people are, are listening to this. And that's the great thing about it. It's all for me. It's all so I can get stuff out. And if people happen to listen to it, eh, terrific. But I'm certainly not expecting it. So it is October, early October. And I am thinking back on, well, the past couple of years. Uh, I definitely don't want to go into this any more than I already have, because I think it's done. But I ran into, like, rerunning into uh, Train Girl, uh, who I went on a date with in San Francisco just before the pandemic hit about a year and a half ago. The fact that I ran into her in a completely other, a completely different state. Um, it's weird, because she was one of those things... I guess I'd borrow a line from a couple of book titles, one of which I think I might have read at some point. She ended up being a consequential stranger. And about a month out from having run into her again, completely randomly elsewhere, uh, she seems to have had the same effect. It sort of forced perspective on things and sort of forced me to look at things in a different way. And sort of reevaluate, okay, what trajectory am I really on? It's weird how somebody could do that not just once but twice. But I am thinking about San Francisco to get to the matter at hand, to what I actually want to talk about. There was something magical for me about the last six months I was in San Francisco the last five of which were overshadowed by shelter in place. It was an unusual time in my life because it was a time in those six months, I was not longing nostalgically for some 
point in the past. And I wasn't thinking, you know, I'm unhappy where I'm at, but it's a transition to somewhere else. I just wish I could transition to that future, even though it's unknown to me. I wish I could get to that faster. I wish I could get past this being where I am. And that was the way I had felt pretty much my entire adult life up to that point. I was either longing to go back to something that I'd left behind, or I was hoping to, to move on to the thing that I'm headed for, the thing that I will discover sometime in the future, some indeterminate you know, time out, out in the future when I will you know, be happy. The last six months in San Francisco, I was not thinking that way. I was just, I was just in the present. That's exactly what I was. I was present. I was waking up every day and I was simply happy to be where I was. And I've had that in the past, I think. I think there's, there's been some short periods in my life where that was the case. Probably when I first moved to Santa Barbara. I think that's the way I felt. There were pockets of it when I was living in Ann Arbor. Uh, there were definitely times when I felt that way in college. But just a long stretch of six months in which I was just waking up every day and thinking, I might go do something today. And here are the options. Or I might not do anything. I might just stay in and just, you know, avoid the virus and watch TV or something. Like that was, I really, really, I knew that was going on. I remember while that was happening, I recognized it in the moment. I was like, someday I'm going to look back on all of these days. I'm going to look back at this time in my life and think, wow, that was great. You know, it's going to be one of those pasts that I long to go back to. And that was part of the reason I decided to stop and stay in Boulder for a year. Because I had visited Boulder a couple, a couple of times before. And I was like, you know, I think if I, if I stay here, if I live here, um, there's a very, very good chance that I'll find that consistently, you know, for that entire year. Most days have been like that, actually. Most days have been like that since um, the time in San Francisco, even when I was in Michigan. In Michigan, there was a little bit of, okay, this is not where I belong. I don't belong in the house living with my parents. I don't belong in Detroit. There's just something off about it. It doesn't sit with me. So I'm going to be heading somewhere else. And it was kind of like, I wish I was back in San Francisco instead of here. I wish circumstances were normal for all kinds of reasons. But it, it wasn't as pronounced as it was. Like when I was living in Palo Alto, uh, there were definitely days where it was just a slog. I was like, I, I really miss where I just moved away from. And I, I really don't like many aspects of the circumstances of where I'm living. You know, uh, that, when I moved to Mountain View, that was doubly true. I don't think I had a really good day that I enjoyed in Mountain View ever. 
And it took a little while to get there in San Francisco. It took a while for me to find that. Um, but, you know, you've got to appreciate those times. I think probably everyone listening to this can relate. You can probably think back and, and remember those times when you were just happy with the present moment. And you knew it had to end. You knew it would come to an end, but you kind of hoped that it wouldn't. You hoped it would drag out as long as possible. And so I have this idea, which I've been talking about, that next summer, when my lease in Boulder is up, I'm going to pack up everything and head back to San Francisco. And, you know, hopefully there won't be like uh, an Epsilon or a, or a, you know, a Theta variant of coronavirus, which is causing problems in San Francisco. Hopefully two years out uh, plus from the start of this whole pandemic thing. Uh, we will have put it behind us. Fingers crossed. But I'm not sure that I want to do that. The thing is, I did have six really good months in San Francisco in which I was crawling the city. I had some routines, but I was exploring new things pretty consistently. And by the time I left, I'm not sure that there was... I'm not sure that there was much left of the city that I hadn't found, at least majorly. San Francisco is, as I've mentioned, a lot of nooks and crannies. It's got a lot of secret hidden things. It's, it's very, very dense in terms of what you can do as a person just sort of stumbling around and bumping into shit. And that's one of the things I like about it is you can go just about anywhere and there's something interesting. There's an interesting set of people or something novel that you wouldn't find in any other city. Almost everywhere. Uh, but the thing is, I had visited most of those things. You know, um, I guess as, a, as a one example that kind of summarizes the whole city, I had been to Golden Gate Park and I had walked most of the trails in it. But I hadn't explored every square inch of Golden Gate and I hadn't visited every thing that's in there. I never visited the Japanese tea garden, for example. I walked by it, but I never stopped in and did whatever you're supposed to do at a Japanese tea garden. I guess it's a tea ceremony of some kind. I don't know if they do those there, but it's a Japanese tea garden, so they must do tea ceremonies, <laughs> I would think. Um, so it's like that. If I went back, there would be a lot of smaller stones I could unturn, but I was thinking, you know, maybe it's, like I said, a matter of quitting while you're ahead. Maybe I left while the magic was still alive for me in San Francisco. Like, it was kind of a grudging, I really should do this for my family. I probably should do this for my own mental health. Living alone in San Francisco was not, there were drawbacks to it. There was a reason that I left when I did. And so I, I wonder if it's just, I should just leave it alone. Like maybe go back to visit here and there, but don't try to move back. Don't try to set up residence again and, and explore the city and expect the magic to be there. Maybe the magic just happened, uh, not because of of me, but just because of the circumstances, because of where I was at the time. 
And to try and go back and recreate that would be anathema. You know, it would just be a pointless exercise. We're trying to force something that really just happened organically, largely by accident. And I wonder if going back would, would, would ruin it for me. And that was originally the plan anyway. I, I kind of forgot that when I was in San Francisco and really loving it, that when I moved to the Bay Area, I was originally thinking, okay, spend four or five years here. You know, you can spend your late 30s uh, living in Silicon Valley and working at a Silicon Valley company just so you can say you had that experience. This is a phase that you're, you're going to live through. You're going to experience. What's it like to live here? You know, and it seems like this will be something I mean, who hasn't heard of Silicon Valley at this point? You know, 20 years ago, it would have been something only, I, I guess, hedge fund managers, like investors, falling tech companies, uh, or people working in tech might have known about. It's a little bit more prominent now. So I was kind of like, this this would be a nice thing to have on my resume, so to speak. You know, someday when if I'm ever like a, uh, well, I am an uncle. But someday when the kids are old enough to like possibly give a shit about what it was I did, you know, in my heyday, I could be like, yeah, you know, I used to work in, in Silicon Valley at one of those one of those companies. And I was like, yeah, that, that's that might be something that's a nice like thing to try. Let's just give it a go. You know, if it turns out it doesn't work out and it probably won't after a few years or after a few months, whatever, you can leave. And it was just something you can say you gave a shot, you know, kind of like I have aspirations of living overseas now. I'd kind of like to live somewhere in Europe. It would be great if I could live in New Zealand slash Australia somewhere. I heard about a town in Australia. I can't remember the name of it, Cooper or something or other, but it's out in the middle of nowhere. Like it's one of those... It's in flyover country in Australia, or I guess um, there's a train that passes through there. So I don't know what the equivalent is, like um, rail, rail over country. Does that work? Anyway, the, it, it's quite literal in this case because the, the town itself is actually, it's a mining town and its main export is opal. Um, but the, the town is so hot, like the temperature is so excruciatingly warm, uh, in the summertime that most of the town is just underground. Like people just have their houses and streets and stores and things are, everything is just underground, uh, by design. And I guess it ties into the mines somehow. Uh, I'm not really sure, but that's, that's the kind of place I'd like to visit. I don't know if I want to live there. But that's uh, that's the kind of that's the kind of place I want to go visit when I'm visiting somewhere. Like if I ever go to Iceland, and Iceland would be a pretty cool trip. Like I'm gonna go to well, the capital. It starts with an R. I really don't want to even try pronouncing it because that will just that will just show uh, how ignorant I am of geography. I was talking to a friend of mine, and he mentioned uh, Bangkok. Was it Bangkok? 
I don't remember the city, but he was talking about Bangkok. And I was like responding to him as though that were in China. And I was like, at some point I kind of caught on based on what he was saying. I was like, okay, my Asian geography is absolutely shit. So where is Bangkok? That's in, is that in Thailand? China? He was like, yeah, it's in Thailand. I think it's in Thailand. Um, whatever city he was talking about, it was in Thailand. And I thought it was in mainland China. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't know geography all that well. It's not my strong suit. Uh, it's one of those things where, like, you know, we have maps now that are available. You know, Einstein's whole thing. You know, Einstein said it, so it's something a smart person would say. I don't have to memorize all this stuff because it's I could just look it up if I need to know it, right? Doesn't quite track, but I'm going to play that card anyway. But yeah, so I I don't know. I, I'm reasonably sure that in a year from now, when my lease is up, I'm not going to want to stay in Boulder. I've I've kind of come to the realization that this um this is a great city and I'm I'm liking it. Uh, for the most part, there there are some days that are kind of like yeah I'm like yeah I could I could stand to be out of here. I could I wish I were still on the road, and I could travel and stay somewhere else. You know, go vacation and not be tied down somewhere. Um, but it's, it's, it's overall, I'm, I'm enjoying it about as much as I expected. I'm not hiking as much as I would have thought. Like that was one of the main reasons I moved here was for the mountains and proximity to the mountains and the ability to just wake up every morning and go on a little hike and get it. You'll see a scenic panoramic view of the greater Denver area and then come back down and, you know, jump on the computer and go to work. It hasn't really played out like that at all. I, I went on a one hike with a group of people in, uh, yeah, somewhere up in the mountains. Um, that was nice. It was nice to meet some locals. Had a couple of interesting conversations with, um, yeah, people are, people are generally intelligent here, uh, which is nice. You know, one person I talked about, uh, one person I talked about was a, an investor. Like, I think he, he didn't do that for a living. Like he wasn't licensed, but he, as a kind of part-time hobby, like he had enough freedom relative to his work life that he spent maybe half of his time just uh, investing in things. And so I talked about, you know, what are you interested in these days? You know, and he told me about how he was trying to figure out how to profit from what was going on in the Chinese bond market. And that's the kind of stuff I can nerd out about uh, if somebody happens to know about it. You know, uh, business major. I didn't really study finance so much as I had studied bookkeeping, but I have been looking into investing just for myself. Um, I'm more one of those uh, buy and hold uh, carefully sort of investors. I probably come from the, the Warren Buffett, uh, Benjamin Graham school of, of thinking. I've uh, I've looked into methods of, you know, using computers to analyze stock data, you know, in real time or, or trends over time and saying, OK, well, let, let's uh, look at how the charts move and figure out where it might be headed based on that, like chartists or technical analysis. Um, that is very, very hard. 
that is a whole lot of, okay, you have to understand how to apply these mathematical models. You have to get access to the data. And at the end of the day, to the extent that I've looked into it, I haven't found anybody who's done it like successfully, at least for the stock market. If you do technical analysis of markets and the economy overall, that can be useful as an input to an overall investment strategy. But if you're just like looking at stock prices and thinking that they go up or down and there's momentum in the up or down and you can profit from that in the short term, that is, I haven't heard of anybody profiting from that consistently as a matter of skill and not just a matter of luck. So I'm much more in the fundamental analysis, uh, you know, value investing school. Uh, essentially what Warren Buffett does, and I'm no Warren Buffett, by the way, but what he does is he reads financial statements. He looks at a company's, you know, balance sheet, income statement, cash flow statement, and based on those figures out how strong a company appears, you know, relative to others in the same industry, uh, how it seems like it's doing over time, how it's doing in the market overall, you know, considers everything and, you know, invests and holds companies that he thinks are strong uh, from a fundamental perspective over the long term. Looking for companies with a competitive advantage over the uh, um, over their competitors. Uh, one concrete example of that is I, I read an article recently that says that the supply chain management or not supply chain management, that's the academic field. The supply chain in the United States is kind of screwed right now. So there are, because of the pandemic, people ordering things online and ordering a lot of stuff anyway, because there's, for a lot of people, there's not much else to do but online shopping. The number of imports has skyrocketed. And so there's a whole bunch of logistics companies that are bringing, you know, imported goods over uh, in, you know, shipping containers on boats from Asia to the United States. And right now there are a whole bunch of these things um, parked offshore. Like, like there aren't enough ports for them to dock at. So they're just like hiding out in sea or they're holding out at sea. I like to throw in the wrong word every now and then. It's just my brain screwing with me. Uh, they're just sort of like waiting offshore for a port to open up so they can unload their stuff and then head back and bring more over. And there's a whole bunch of logistics companies that are doing this. Uh, nobody's really in charge of all of this. There's no central coordination. So it's just sort of, I don't know. It's like, like ants can, ants can operate in a decentralized fashion. Ants like leave chemical trails for each other and somehow out of that they can organize and end up in, in a flow where they're all carrying food from one location uh, back to the, you know, their anthill, wherever it is the colony is. Um, it's kind of like you have a bunch of ants of different species that can't understand each other, but they're all getting in each other's way. And there's really, it's it's just a clusterfuck right now. And so I, I look at a situation like that and I think to myself, okay, 
it's very, very grim right now. And I'm, I'm reasonably sure that one of these shipping companies, at least one of them, maybe has a stock price that is very, very low because everyone's very pessimistic about, you know, how well they're doing now. But the thing is, the situation probably will be resolved. You know, it's a new problem. It's a problem that is circumstantial. It's volume of imports that has never come up before, so they're not equipped to deal with it. And so it looks like all these companies are failing. They're doing a horrible job, which would depress the stock price. But I'm willing to bet that over the short term, eventually they get their act together, and some of them, the stock price will adjust adjust back up. And so the question is, are any of these companies worth buying in the short term and, and you know, uh, you know, possibly making a quick uh, you know, capital gain on? Um, uh, yeah, well, long story short, I looked at them and considered long-term holdings. It, it looks like most of them are barely profitable. Um, you know, their, their profits are not consistent. They're kind of wildly all over the place. And they're often in excess of profits. Or sorry, they're, the costs are in excess of profits. So that, that would be a, you know, not a profit, a loss. And so it doesn't look like there's anybody that's worth, you know, buying and holding on to in the long term in this industry. It looks like it's very, very cutthroat. And yeah, in the end, I was like, there's probably better places to, to put, uh, capital in terms of investing in the stock market. Um, kind of a long-winded explanation. There was no payoff there. Uh, but, um, yeah, no, of course, the, the question of the day that everyone's wondering about is inflation. Seeing as how the government is now injecting a bunch of money into the economy, which is essentially coming from nowhere. Um, <laughs> Uh, there's, of course, money is going to begin to devalue over the next year or two. And I, you can definitely see that. You can see that happening just everywhere. You know, things are becoming more expensive. People are raising prices. And, uh, yeah, it's weird. Like, I, like I see signs, like I saw a sign at Target the other day. It was like hiring hiring a bunch of positions, please apply. We're starting at like 16 or $17 an hour. Starting at, if you're a manager, I guess you're, you're making more than that. It's like places, like retail places, places where I guess you're, you're in the service industry and you have to interface with the public. Even if people are struggling financially, they're kind of saying, well, it's not worth putting my life at risk. You know, going out there and exposing myself to a bunch of like people who might cough on me and give me the virus, uh, just to like earn a paycheck. And so company, I guess that's the reason companies can't hire people. Either that or people are just like, you know, my time is, it, it's not worth, you know, working for money that's going to devalue over time. And so that's, that's a whole other question financially, like, what exactly should one do with their money in the face of inflation? Uh, difficult question. Uh, what I always heard in school, in the few finance classes that I had to take, was that gold is a good hedge against inflation. 
Um, to the extent that I've looked into that, that seems like the relationship between gold and the stock market is much more complicated than that. It's not one goes up, the other goes down. And if you expect one to go up, then the other will go down. It, it's it's There's not a neat correlation. So it, just buying gold would be fairly speculative as a, uh, I don't know, if you expect the stock market to tank, for example, uh, investing in gold wouldn't necessarily yield a payoff. Uh, but gold is just one of many commodities, and uh, conventional wisdom says that uh, you know commodities have commodities have historically been a good hedge against inflation, which intuitively makes sense. If money is going to devalue, then put your money into things that you expect to uh, appreciate, or at the very least, things that will not lose their value. Um, that later you can turn around and sell. Uh, really, I don't think you need a degree in finance to understand that concept. And I think it's one of those things that even the general person understands. You know, if you have money, go out and spend it. Don't stick it in the bank because it's just gonna just gonna lose value. There's some broad economic things that I think everyone sort of understands. And everyone sort of operates by, and I think that's one of them. Um, maybe not everyone, but people who people who give it some thought or operate with some intuition that's backed by knowledge of how the economy works. And I think that's more people than that's more people than just those that have business degrees. Uh, but I'm not sure. That's just a fleeting theory. I got here because I was talking about a hike that I went on, and I happened to run into a gentleman who was talking about uh, his investment areas of interest. That's how we got here. But yeah, I haven't been hiking in Boulder as much as I would have expected. It's uh, really quite a surprise. I went to a meeting, and I, I guess I've talked about this a little bit, but not at length. And it prepares... It, it, See, I can't talk. This is why I'm talking to you, because I'm practicing. I don't get out much and have conversations with people. So you are my guinea pigs. You are my, um, and I guinea pig. I'm not experimenting with you. I am just practicing on you. You're my, um, what's a good analogy? My punching bag. Got my boxing gloves on, and I'm just practicing my conversational skills here with you. Um, I talked about six months ago, I think, on here about... I really don't have much of a sexual drive at all. I never have. And so it's kind of come to my attention, probably through BoJack Horseman, uh, and the character of Todd, who towards the end of the third season sort of is a plot point where he, he, somebody asks him like, so what are you? You know, you're not really going after women. You don't seem to care about women. I'm flirting with you and you don't seem to pick up on any of the signals. What are you? And he's like, I don't know. I might just be nothing. And so the character of Todd 
uh, from Bojack Horseman has become something of, a, of an icon in the uh, asexual community. He's, um, yeah, I think this is where I first even became aware that like, somebody could be that. That is a thing. And, you know, that, that's a label you could apply to yourself if you so choose. Um, spending time over the winter sort of introspectively considering myself and reflecting on my entire life up until that point, I kind of looked back and thought to myself, maybe this should have been obvious. I feel like I've talked about this before, you know, with other people, and I've thought about it to myself, but I never thought, what are the implications for your sexual orientation? Like, let's really think about it, you know? It's kind of that difference between what is expected of you versus what are you really? And you try and like merge those two things as much as possible, but at some point it just becomes exhausting to try and be what others expect. And when you realize that, you say, you know, maybe it's time for a shift in things. And so I thought back to all the experiences I ever had with, with women. Um, girls in high school that I ended up going to dances with or spent time with. And I can remember with a lot of them, I can remember off the top of my head, maybe half a dozen instances where I was somewhere alone with a girl. And that was the moment. You know, if you're a guy and you're interested in that sort of thing and you're interested in the girl, it's time for you to make a move. And in these sorts of cases, all the ones I can remember, I never did. And it wasn't because I was a chicken chip. Um, first of all, the reason I ended up in those situations is because there was a sense on my part that this is what I'm supposed to do. You know, you find a girl that you like and you sort of develop something with her. And at some point that's supposed to happen, you know. Um, I went into it with that sort of like idea in the back of my head, like that this is what you're supposed to do. And when you get there, you'll figure it out. And every single one of these times that I ended up with a girl and it was that moment, the opportune time to make a move and to do something, I never did. And it wasn't out of fear. It wasn't out of, I don't want to screw this up. It wasn't out of you know, the normal thing you see in movies where there's just a teenage kid who, like, I'm, I'm freaked out. I don't know what to do. He just, like, you know, jizzes in his pants, and it's just it's just a mess. It's a horrible thing. It was none of that. The thing is, I didn't make a move with any of these girls because I, I didn't want to. There was, there was a complete and total lack of desire. I was like, I, I could do this. I know that I I can do it. I know what I would do. I know how I would approach the situation, like my kind of attack plan, if you will. And I, I just, I just didn't want to. I was like, I don't, I don't see the result being something that I would enjoy. I don't, I don't see the outcome being something that I want. And so it's kind of like, I feel like that's the way 
people who realize they're homosexual later in life sort of, they look back on their experiences, like the way they behave with others, their experiences with other guys, or I guess girls, people of the same gender, people of the opposite gender, you know, their feelings internally. And they sort of say, you know, I might be gay and I probably should have realized that sooner because all the signs are there. But I just ignored them for some reason. So I kind of came to that. I kind of came to the realization that that was the case in high school. I never really did anything with anyone because I didn't want to. And later when I became an adult, like when I was in college, I was just sort of waiting. I was like, well, it hasn't struck me yet, this desire. Seems like everybody around me is doing it now. You know, in high school, everyone around me told me that they were doing it, but probably only, you know, what, 20% of them were actually doing it. In college, everyone's everyone's off fucking some other person. You know, they're, they're all hooking up with each other. Um, that's what college is for, I think. And it really, I spent most of college, like, that desire just was not there. You know, the desire for maybe some kind of companionship was there, but not sex. And I was really hesitant to go down that road because I didn't want, I didn't, I didn't want to bother confronting that again. I was like, I remember what happened in high school. Smart Money says that'll just happen again. And that was, that was awkward. I don't want those awkward moments. That's what bothered me was the awkwardness, you know. Me and a girl my junior year went to homecoming, you know, and she dropped me off and we're kind of standing outside my parents' house in the driveway next to her car. And she's expectantly talking to me, looking at me, waiting for me to do something. And I was like, I I don't want to do anything with you. And the thing is, she was she was Catholic. She was about as as, you know, straight laced and upright and and uptight as people came, you know, and even she was like looking for more in the, uh, Hey, let's, uh, let's do this thing, uh, department than I was willing to even consider. And I was like, that's fucked up. I mean, if, if a, if a Catholic is less repressed than I am, there must be something really going on with me. I don't know what, what the hell am I supposed to do with that? You kind of open the box and that that's your sexual identity. It's like, what am I supposed to do with this? So in college, I remembered that and I really didn't. I never met a girl who was worth it. It was worth like, let's just go for it until my, you know, my senior year. And when that happened, it was kind of like, okay, the desire hasn't really come upon me naturally yet. I haven't really gotten there, but the desire to do a lot of things in your adult life is missing anyway. No one wants to leave college and go out to the, into the real world and get a real job and you have to start supporting yourself. And suddenly you're, you're not living with, you know, with you, okay, I, I didn't want to live with my parents anymore, but, you know, if you had the choice of like leeching off your parents for a little while, you know, and saving some money versus going out and like suddenly living on your own and dealing with all those responsibilities, uh, dealing with utility companies or neighbors or landlords or 
whatever it might be. There are things that you just, you do as an adult because you have to do them. Even if you don't want to do them, you simply bear up and you do them because you're a fucking adult and it's what adults do. And this is the way I kind of regarded sex. I was like, it's not something I want to do, but if you want to be in a relationship with somebody, you got to do it. You know, at least as much as you can. Um, but still, I mean, the desire was not there. And the thing is, sex is not like getting a job. It's not supposed to be something that you you force yourself through because you're supposed to do it. It's supposed to be something you enjoy. It's like you're not supposed to get married just because you are supposed to get married. You're supposed to do it because it's something that you realize that you want for yourself. You know, you, you prefer that to the alternative of being single. So it isn't the same thing. I, I think it was like a false equivalency that I drew. Like, yeah, there you got to do this because you should. That was mistaken. So I confronted this, and it made a lot of sense this past winter when I was sort of reflecting. I was like, well, my experience mostly points to that. I can, I can think of exceptions. I can think of reasons why I might not be fully asexual, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of indicators pointing to that. Like it feels right to me, but I was also hyper aware when I was talking about this six months ago that I was, I had just spent a winter living with my parents and really having no other interactions in person except over Zoom. You know, no, no interactions in person with any other human being, but my parents and maybe my brother and his wife and their, you know, newborn kid. I was like, there's not a whole lot of, um, sources of desire to tap into you know if anything if anything's going to kill your sexuality it's being locked up with your parents for a winter you know you'd expect that and so i was like i want to be careful about what conclusions i draw and apply to myself more generally uh until i'm in a more objective place and i can decide this for myself And so I've been giving this some thought lately, and it, it still seems accurate. I mean, I, I am now, I am now in a city that is full of a bunch of people, many of whom are very, very attractive women, uh, many of whom will send glances and indicators of interest my way, and I really don't have any interest in trying to approach that situation for any reason. And what I'm trying to wonder, I'm trying to get to the bottom of now, what I'm trying to pick apart is whether or not this is just some, if I'm just inhibiting myself as a means of, like it's a sour grapes thing is what I wonder. I wonder if it's just me saying, there's been years and years of like rejections you know, or things, places where I wasn't rejected, but the situations didn't pan out. I've had such bad experiences, rejection or otherwise, with the opposite sex, that I'm just, for some reason, my brain is saying it'd be best if you just didn't 
do anything with this right now. And we're going to kill the desire inside of you because. And for all I know, that could have been going on when I was a teenager. There's a joke that I think a comedian, I don't remember where I heard it or who said it exactly. But they said, like, about sex addicts, people who go to, like, sexual addiction support groups. He's like, yeah, I get the idea. But how do you know if you're a sex addict versus just you? Now, I know there's like a clinical answer to that question. It's meant to be tongue in cheek. But of course, if you ask a psychologist, they're going to say, well, a sex addict, uh, sex is interfering with their normal day to day functioning in life. You know, somebody who's not a sex addict is just able to have sex and it doesn't interfere. Yeah, I get that. The question I have about myself is, how do I know that I'm really asexual versus there's just not something else that I'm not dealing with? Something else that it's inhibiting me, that if I manage to work through it, that might uh, blossom in me naturally. So I keep an open mind. I don't take on the label of asexual and say, well, that defines me in perpetuity. It's more a question of, Why is that the way you feel right now? And so I haven't done much about that. The thing is, I don't, this is not something I have focused on. This is not something I have cared about at all. You know, there are a few books about asexuals. There's one, I think the most popular one is called The Invisible Orientation. There are a whole bunch of like different labels for this. Like there's gray asexual, there's aromantic versus asexual. There's, um, there's a whole vocabulary around this whole thing. And it, and I don't know that vocabulary. I don't know any of the jargon. And I really don't care about it. I haven't invested a whole lot of time in figuring out where it is I might be in this hierarchy of people who don't care about sex or don't care about romance or whatever it might be. I don't see the merit in spending time doing that. Um, But this week, I I went to a support group meeting for ACEs in the greater Denver area. And that was the first time I'd ever decided to voluntarily interact with people who, I guess, feel similar to me. There's a desire maybe for companionship but there's no desire for any sort of physical intimacy. And it was interesting listening to them. And there were a lot of things that I kind of could relate to. I didn't offer much. Um, Partly because I was, it was virtual. Like actually there was a, there was a table of people who were all meeting in person. And there were maybe four or five of us who were on a zoom call. It was on a screen you know, in this conference room where a bunch of people were sitting. And so it felt weird to contribute. And there really wasn't anything. I didn't have anything vulnerable that I wanted to share. I didn't have any like, I didn't have anything vulnerable that I was dealing with. There were some other people who were talking about pain they've experienced or rejection that they've experienced or those sorts of things. I mean, that's what a support group is for. You're supposed to talk about these things and people sort of say, yeah, that's, that's common to the experience. You know, you're supposed to feel that way. And I came away from this meeting actually feeling really, really good because I realized that, yeah, I mean, some of that stuff resonates with me. 
It has resonated with me in the past, but much of it doesn't now. And I can give you an example of this. There's, so I did tell a friend of mine, there's one friend that I have that I've, I've talked to on a fairly regular basis since middle school. So I've known him for about 30 years and we've talked maybe once or twice a year on the average, at least in that time. It's in the last 10 years that's been about the cadence. And I mentioned this to him and he was kind of like, I don't think you're asexual based on what we've talked about in the past, based on what I've observed about you with women. You know, like I, he's like, I don't think that's you. And I was like, well, I'm not really worried about the label. You know, he seemed really hung up on what asexual means, as in a lack of all sexual desire completely, which isn't me. Um, and so I, I, I said, like, look, I'm not really worried about the label. Like, you can call it whatever you want. But the thing is, like, I'm interested in companionship, maybe some touching, but like what you call sex, what that entails I could do without that completely, I think. I think I could marry somebody who never wants that, and that would probably be the best situation for me. And he kind of like listened to this, and he sort of said, you know, I, I still don't see it. I still don't see that being who you are. He's like, I think that there's something you're just not dealing with. You know, there's just something you haven't confronted. You're inhibited for some reason, and you could unblock yourself. Um, you know, what he's implying is that, you know, you should keep, keep on your journey of self-discovery and maybe you'll, you'll uncover something and you'll figure it out. Now, of course, in the group meeting that I had this week, some people shared stories like that, where they, they come out to uh, other people, um, and say like, Hey, you know, I'm asexual. I, I don't quite uh get that i don't quite the use i don't get the use of that term um it hasn't come up yet with anyone uh at least not not with my fa i guess family is the big one right if you're if you're gay you come out to your family and that can be a controversial admission with certain kinds of families but i mean it, it hasn't really like it's not something i would just tell my family about because I don't think anyone in my family really cares. You know, I, I could mention it and say like, hey, you know, I, I think I might be asexual. I'm closer to that than I am like a normal sexual person. And they'd be like, okay, I don't know what to do with that information. Uh, it's all good by me. Thanks for sharing. Like it, would, it would just lead to awkwardness and indifference and like, what do you want from me? And not... Uh, it wouldn't be like, you know, my family doesn't do vulnerability, you know, not like, oh, oh, thank you for sharing that, that deep personal secret with me, you know, uh, nobody cares. Um, they don't reject you. They don't do a whole lot to express, you know, acceptance either. You know, it's just sort of do what you want, you know, who cares? So, I mean, for me, there is no coming out, but if it came up, I would happily admit it. You know, I don't. Henry Rollins used to do stand-up comedy. He might still do it, but one of his routines was he was talking about how 
I don't, some some people in the media thought he was gay and reported on that. And he was like, I don't think I'm gay. He's like, I think I'd remember that if it ever happened to me. Um, and it hasn't. Uh, but he, he said, you know, if, if, if I were gay, there would have never been a closet. There would have been no closet for me to be in. I would have like burned it for kindling as soon as I realized when I was 12 that I was gay. There, there would be no reason to hide that from the world ever for any reason. And that's, that's always the way I've felt. I was like, when I was a teenager, I was like, I'm pretty sure I'm not gay, but if I am, there's really no reason to uh, conceal that from the world. Um, not that I can see. I grew up in a pretty good area. I didn't grow up in the sticks where, you know, coming out as a homosexual might get you killed or at the very least, you know, beaten up. Uh, you puts a target on your back and you end up incurring violence because of it. I live nowhere like that. I, and I think I'm grateful for that. That's probably the reason I, I can say uh, with all confidence that I never would have hid that sort of thing for myself. Of course, if you're in a closet and you're not aware that you're in a closet, it's hard to uh, come out of it, you know, uh, that's, that's maybe more applicable to my current story. But in any case, the stories that the people were sharing at this support group, they're talking about how they, they come out to, they're trying to date and they're telling the people that they're dating. They're trying to explain like, look, I'm really not into sex or they're, they're telling their family about it. And the responses they get are very similar to the ones that they get that I got from my friend when I told him, they're like, you know, there's just something you're not dealing with. You know, I bet if you, if you, I bet I could change you. I bet you just haven't had the right man or woman yet. You know, if you just had the right sexual encounter, suddenly you would discover you actually do like sex. It's just, you've had bad experiences and you've written it off unfairly, et cetera, et cetera. And so the, People who were sharing these stories, of course, they all have the reactions you would expect. You know, they all, they all feel invalidated. They're angry because people are not accepting them for what they are. They're, they're, they're questioning, uh, what their person is telling them. You know, I might be asexual. I know you're not. Uh, you just haven't, haven't met the right man yet or a right woman, you know. Um, which is insulting. I admit that. Like it's it is objectively insulting. Um, I can understand that reaction. But the thing is, my friend gave me this response. He said, "You know, I think it's just something you haven't dealt with." And in my head, I kind of thought, you know, you and I both have a mutual friend from high school that we talk to sometimes, who is openly homosexual, always has been. And, like, would you say to him, you know, uh, you're not really a homosexual. It's just, there's just something you haven't dealt with yet. You know, I didn't say that out loud to him. But in my mind, I was thinking, isn't there kind of an equivalence here? Isn't that kind of the same thing? And maybe he would say that to my friend. Maybe he doesn't, maybe he thinks gay people just haven't dealt with something and they would be heterosexual otherwise. I don't know. If that's the case, then that's fine. You know, I just call for consistency, not, you know, not one way or the other. So I realized in the moment all of the reasons that I should have been frustrated by this question or, or angered by it or insulted by it, but I wasn't. 
I felt no reason to be. And I just said, okay, that's interesting. You don't think I'm asexual. You think there's just something I haven't dealt with. I'm inhibited in some way. Why do you think that? And he went on to explain his reasons. He went on to tell me at length why he felt that way. And I listened. And there were some points in there that are worth reflecting on. But I didn't correct him to the extent that I felt that he was wrong. And so I think there's there's maybe, this is what made me happy, is, is the realization that I really didn't care. And it could have been that he was, because he was a friend of mine. But I, I think even if I were somewhere talking to somebody who I just met, and I was, you know, they, they start talking about sex, some woman, they ask me about my history, and I'm like, well, actually, I'm asexual. And they kind of look at me and say, I don't think you really are. You know, that's not a thing. You're just making that up. You know, you just can't get laid. And you're using that as like, you know, a, a, a cover, you know. But I, I, I can't get laid. I don't have the skill to. So I just, I didn't, I'm, I'm just choosing to pretend that's what I wanted. You know, something like that. They could hurl some of these kind of comebacks at you and say, well, I don't believe you. And I still don't think that I would care. Genuinely, don't think I would care. I don't think it would bother me. Um, and I want to be very, very careful about what it is I'm saying here, because I think that there may be a stage at which if you something about you in your life and if somebody challenges you on it, you don't argue back with them. Like you say, you say to somebody, I, I think I'm asexual, and they say, no, you're not, in some way. And you don't bother to challenge them because you just don't want to stir the pot. You want to avoid the conflict. You just feel like hey, that's, that's the best thing to do. Essentially, you're being a pushover. You know, like it's just not worth, you know, I don't want to deal with the strife that this would bring up. But internally, you really feel offended. You feel insulted and you're frustrated with this other person for invalidating what you just said. You know, them thinking that they know you better than you know yourself somehow. That's not what I'm talking about. I think that if you're at that point, if I met somebody who was at that point, very, very clearly, I would tell them, no, you should stand up for yourself. You should fight back and argue with good logic against what the other person just told you. You, you should say, no, I think I'm asexual and here's what it is, you know. You know give them a quick rundown. Here's what it entails for me. You know, it's not what you think. If you, if you don't agree with me, you're incorrect. Anybody who's at the first level, who's just trying to avoid conflict, they should, I would push them to be at that level. Stand up for yourself. Now, what I realized is that 
I might have these encounters with people who might be friends, acquaintances, maybe strangers I've just met and I'm telling them I'm asexual for some reason. And if they question it, if they push back and say something that is, you know, insulting in some way, uh, I don't think I would care. It's not that I'm trying to avoid conflict. It's not that I'm just saying I'm, I, I don't want to ruffle feathers here. It is me saying I don't need to convince you that I'm right. And that's what I came to when I was sitting there listening to the group. The, the word comprehend comes from a Latin word, comprehere. And I think it has two meanings. One is to understand, and the second one is to, to overcome, to dominate, to control. And I only know this because this is early on in the Gospel of John. Um, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Sometimes you will see that overcome translated as understood. And this is the reason why the derivation has, it's a word that means both things. So to comprehend means to control in some ways. And so going with that thread, if someone misunderstands what I say, misinterprets it, either because they're obdurate, or because they're judgmental, or because they're uncomfortable with something I've said about myself and they challenge it, it's more profitable for me to try and understand why they had that reaction than for me to try and get them to understand my position. I really don't care if they understand my position. I don't care if everyone in the world misunderstands me. I don't care if nobody understands my sexual identity. Why would I? I understand it as it seems to me right now. And that's all that matters to me. Matter of fact, the only thing I'm really afraid of is me not understanding myself. That is what I think everybody should be afraid of. But I don't see the, the benefit in going to war, you know, with, with every single person, like putting on battle armor every time somebody questions something you just said about yourself. Let other people misunderstand you. It's okay. And as long as you are comfortable in who you are and you know who you are, once you know that through and through, you're perfectly comfortable letting other people misunderstand you. And that is where I would encourage everyone to be. Now, I think there probably is a case to be made for, even if you're there, you should stand up and try and explain yourself. You know, don't just roll over and let people define you their way. But don't let it, don't let it really bother you at a deep fundamental level either. Now, I didn't bother saying this to the group. 
I sort of put that together in my head in some very concise form, but I realized that I, I couldn't say it to the group because it wouldn't come off right. I wouldn't be able to do the point justice given a little bit of time <clears throat> with a group of people that I'd never really met before, where the whole point was to try and be vulnerable and support each other. Uh, what it reminded me of, if I had come out and said that, I don't think it would have helped anyone but me. I think affirming that to others might have helped me feel good about myself. And certainly I, I left with that point in, in my mind. And I thought that I feel that way about everything about myself. You know, there was a point in time where I was just like, I don't, I don't care if everyone in the, in the world misunderstands everything about me, including but not limited to my possible sexual orientation. I don't give a shit. You know, everything that I am, I think a lot of people are confused by that. But let, let that be the case. What do I care? As long as I know myself, I'm not that worried. Now, of course, I, I'm being hyperbolic. If it were true that nobody in the world understood anything about me, that would be very, very alienating. And at some point, you start adapting yourself to the world, or you start fighting to make sure that the world understands you. But of course, that's not the case. Nobody's that unique. Certainly don't think I'm that unique. But it reminded me of a scene somewhere in the middle of, of Breaking Bad where Walter White goes in for a regular checkup. Like at that point, he has, he's gone into remission and he's just going back every so often to see if the cancer has come back. And so he's in the waiting room in the gown about to go into the machine. And there's another guy in there with him who's also in the gown. And he's just gotten a diagnosis and he's really, he's very scared. And he's trying to be vulnerable with the character of Walter White, just the two of them alone in this room. And he's saying, you know, I'm, I'm just so scared. I can't believe this. Like, my life was just normal one day. And, the, and Walter White is trying to, like, brush him off. He's trying to send him every nonverbal signal he can that I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to talk about this. You know, he pretends to receive a phone call and, you know, gets on his, his little clamshell and starts talking. You know, hangs up and hopes that the guy has gotten the message, but the guy just goes on as if nothing had happened. And so he kind of opens up the floor to the character of Walter White. And Walter White just says back to him, you know, like, you know, never give up control. He's like, I know one day I'm going to come in here and I'm going to have cancer. But until then, I make the decisions. Nobody tells me what to do. And the point of the scene, which I remember not picking up on the first time I saw it, is just to show the character of Walter White as being resistant to showing vulnerability. He doesn't want to admit that he's alone and afraid and feels scared by this disease. And he sure as hell doesn't want to hear somebody else complain about that. He doesn't, he doesn't relate to that. It's very, very telling. 
And it, it occurred to me that if I were to come out and say, you know, roughly that, I don't care what other people think. Let them come back at me with insults about, you know, they, they think I'm not really asexual. What do I care? It would have sounded more defensive than it would have sounded affirming. Now, of course, I can't say I always feel, I feel pretty comfortable with where I am and how much experience I have and how much experience I seek out. My sex life is fine. I don't feel it's lacking. And if I did, I'm reasonably sure I would go out and, and do something about it quite actively. But I don't. So I don't. But there are certainly other aspects of my life that uh don't quite know what to do with yet. <clears throat> yeah, so I guess I will talk about we'll talk about this. I'll talk about women. Um I mentioned before that I live in a college town. And there are, there are a lot of like college girls walking around. I encounter them at, you know, every single day. I go out there everywhere. They're downtown. They're on the streets. Anywhere I might walk, they're infused now that school is back in session. I didn't realize that was going to be the case. Considering how close I am to the university, I probably should have. Um, not just college girls, it's college students. There is all kinds of. And, well, you know what college students are like. And it's, it's strange to me. I just, there's nothing like being around college students when you're 39 that make you appreciate being 39 and not being in college anymore. There's a lot of things about college I forgot. I really have not been, I have not encountered those elements in a while. I mentioned, uh, I think last time that I go jogging and my jogging road goes through student housing. And I planned that out before school was back in session. So I didn't exactly realize that was the case. Uh, but a few weeks ago I was jogging and I was just starting, starting up the hill going from my place. Um, and I passed by a group of guys. Like I sort of ran around them on the grass. There was a cluster of them taking up the sidewalk. And uh, one of them was like, hey, look at me, I'm going to run. Um, and I think he was he was talking to his friends, but he was doing it loud enough so I could hear him. And I think he was like trying to insult me somehow. And I was like, man, that insult really lacks teeth. You have no idea. Because uh, when I was in college and I was jogging, I'd go jogging and I'd hear my fellow students like yell stuff at me, but it was always stuff that was potentially offensive or actually insulting. Like the number of times I was out jogging when I was in college 20 years ago and I got called faggot for doing so. I couldn't tell you how many times that happened. That was the number one word people threw at me. I guess going out and jogging is something that homosexuals did or something. I never quite got that. Um, 
but now like the insults like I like it's such a, a, a PC culture that people can't even say that. People have like thrown insults my way that my way and when I hear them, usually I don't. Usually I'm just tuned out from them. Uh it's something like that. Somebody's just like, Hey, look at me, I'm running or something. Like there is no creativity in that insult at all. It has absolutely no no bite. There's nothing like that would latch onto me and actually make me feel insulted. I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but I'm just I'm just comparing the culture now, which seems to be very very hypersensitive to, you know, not throwing around words that might offend people. To what things were like when I was in college. Again, not saying it's better or worse. It's just unusual. But the point I really want to make here is that, really? So you're a college student, and you're walking with your friends, and you're heading out to a party, and I think it was a Friday night when this happened, this particular instance I'm referring to. And some guy goes jogging by you. And you think, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to hurl an insult at this guy. I'm going to make fun of him because he's, he's, out, he's out jogging. Same thing happened. I was jogging back down the hill, I think that very same night, and I was coming upon a group of college girls that were walking up the hill back to wherever they lived. And they were all talking. There was chatter among them. And as I approached them, I jogged up to them, they all fell silent. And their attention fell on me. And as I passed by, like I sort of like went around them. I had to like kind of do this weird jump like laterally uh, while I was running to avoid like hitting them and to go around the pole and like while I passed them I heard them like snicker and the snickers were definitely directed at me the silence was because of me snickers were because of me and this doesn't bother me but it just reminds me that like really you're out walking with your friends and you're going to focus your attention on making some sort of snide remark at somebody who's jogging. When you're in college, this is just how impoverished your fucking internal and outer life is for most people. You just, you have no idea what the world is. You know nothing. You are naive and you don't know it. And that's what you do. You do you see somebody jogging, you're like, wow, what an idiot. Let's let's yell something at him. You know. Uh I mean Jesus. I mean, thing is they're college students, so not like I care. You know. I give them a pass. When you're in college, you're supposed to be stupid. That's what you do as a college as a college student, as a high school student, before you actually get out into the world and you have a job. You're naive, you're dumb in a very certain way that I just accept, you know. Quite frankly, if I were jogging by like, a, I don't know, a group of, um, I don't know, middle-aged 40-somethings, you know, they're walking along and they start hurling insults at me because I'm jogging, that's sad. That's pathetic. That's, you should have moved on from that mentality. You should have gotten a life, uh... Anyway, that's an ancillary point. 
this isn't where I'm headed. But yes, I, I do. I'm so glad that I don't um, listen to college students. But anyway, they're not uh, they're not really on my radar. Like I ignore the insults, but I ignore the other things too. Um, I went out walking, and the thing is, I try not to dress. I don't like wear a suit. You know, I don't put on like khakis and a nice dress shirt, but I will put on like a a nice collared dress shirt and you know, untucked with jeans. And I, I, I try and wear dress shoes whenever I can. Like I try and wear some nice shoes and a nice shirt with jeans. That tends to be what I wear when I go out. Um, uh, this when it's not swelteringly hot. Um, so I'm trying to like find a balance between, you know, I don't want to look like a scrub. I don't want to look like I'm actually a software engineer, but I don't want to look like, um, you know, a lawyer or something and try and try and strike a happy balance. You know, I'm, I'm approaching 40. I should probably take some pride in what I wear and like own some decent clothes. I think I'm past the age of just going in and grabbing a t-shirt, uh, for a rock band or, you know, that says Colorado on it. You know, I can do better. And I think at my age, I, you know, I probably should do better. So I try to. So I was walking by a bar that's about a block from me. And there was like a crowd of, uh, I think they were college girls or they were in their mid twenties. At least I wasn't really looking, but based on the conversation I heard, uh, what the group kind of smelled like, like the general odor of perfume and shit. Like I think that's how old they were. Um, but as I was passing by, one of them yelled, Hey, they're hot stuff. And, uh, you know, a couple seconds later, I heard her say, Hey, hello. And I, it didn't register with me until like after both those things were out, like I definitely had passed. I was like, I think she was yelling that at me because there was no one else she would have been yelling at, no one else on the sidewalk. And I was like, I, I was like, I, I just didn't care. Like I'm not paying attention to these people. Now you sort of spot that sort of crowd and you just say, you know, what? I don't, I, whatever is going on with them, I can stay in my head and keep thinking my thoughts, keep planning out what I'm planning because whatever's going on there, it's not a threat and it ain't worth it. <laughs> it's not worth my time and attention. Um, and yeah, that's, I, I, there's no reason for me to engage in that situation. So, yeah, the thing is, whatever it is, I just ignore those people, even when they do engage me. Uh, there has to be something special about it. And really, it was, you know, it was a group of women, girls. I'm going to call them girls. You know, um, at that age, you're not women yet. <laughs> Sorry, if you're in your mid-20s. If, you um, if you are a female and you are outside a bar like this bar, is uh, at 10 o'clock on a Saturday night and you're with a group of your fellow females, um, you are girls, you are not women, and you are people I do not care about at all. I don't need you in my life for any reason. Um, so well, with that. But of course, why not engage? If it's something good like that, why not 
why not respond and see where things go? I think I told this story in another podcast, which I didn't end up publishing, so I think I can repeat it here. When I was in Austin, Texas, and staying downtown, I was very, very close to the 6th Street District, which is uh, the district where they, you know, they shut down the street on the weekends. Essentially, it's all foot traffic. There's a whole lot of bars and restaurants and a lot of live music and people just stumbling around the streets. It was the first place I went after leaving my parents after a winter of shelter in place. It was just, wow, life is crazy here. There's lots of people. They're out doing stuff. It was in stark contrast to the suburban nothing I had just left. Uh, it felt good to be out amongst people. But if you go uh, east from the 6th Street District, you know, over or under a highway, 6th Street kind of continues into a little neighborhood that feels very hipstery. There's a whole lot of houses that have been converted into restaurants. They don't look like restaurants. They look like houses that somebody said, let's just zone this commercially and start serving food at it you know, maybe do some construction to make it, you know, more suitable for a restaurant layout. But, you know, it's not, it's not like a commercial area, you know, heavily residential, but it's very heavily trafficked. A lot of people live there. Um, and it's definitely the younger crowd, like 20s, maybe early 30s. Um, I felt kind of out of place walking up and down there. I was like, I'm definitely like a tourist. I wouldn't live here because this would be this is not about my neighborhood and not my people. I happened to found like some really good uh, barbecue brisket in that neighborhood. There was a food truck on 6th Street, which was. Yeah, I, w- I would go back there if I ever was in Austin again. I can't remember the name of it, but it was delicious. It was so good. Damn, I love Texas barbecue. But anyway, I was walking back late one night. It was either Thursday or Friday from that neighborhood back towards, you know, the other side of the highway where the city is. Um, and so as I'm walking, there's there's a fair amount of people around, but I become aware that there is somebody behind me who seems to be taking the same odd routes around the other foot traffic that I am. Like they're they're mimicking me. And I'm kind of like, well, it could be that they are drafting. It could be that I'm just walking about their speed. And, you know, uh, when I go walking, I'm not like, I don't really back down. That's my whole thing now. Like time was if I approached like, like 10 years ago, if I was like walking on a sidewalk and there was like three people walking next to each other, all coming at me, you know, I might actually like, you know, turn myself sideways and press up against the wall to give them enough room. Uh, I don't do that anymore. Um, I stopped doing that a long time ago. I don't see any reason to. If I'm walking on the sidewalk and there are three people walking next to each other, coming my way, taking up the entire sidewalk, I take up half the sidewalk. I might move over a little bit. I might give them a little bit of space, you know, for personal space. But... I take up my 50% of the sidewalk because that's that's me. I am one lane of traffic going one way, and there is one lane of traffic for the three of you. 
and how you deal with me taking up my lane and how you negotiate getting all of you into one lane and passing by me without running into me. That is your problem. You guys got to deal with that. That is my stance now. So that's what I mean by drafting. It could be the person realized that I don't back down for people. I will play chicken and I will say, you can run into me if you want. Go ahead. I don't care, but I'm not moving. I'm taking up my half of the sidewalk. You work around me because you're in my space. So I thought, so maybe somebody realized this and they're just like following me because they realize if they, if they do this, they'd have an easier time. Um, but at some point I was like, let's just test this. So I sped up, started walking faster. And the person stayed about the same distance behind me. And then I slowed down measurably. And the person also slowed down. Like they, they were maintaining a distance behind me that was constant. You know, they're about 10 or 15 paces behind me. And they're making sure that that's constant. They're not they're trying not to catch up. They don't want to overtake me or lose me. So I was like, this person is following me. And so I kind of turned around, like I pretended I was looking at something else, and I just caught a glimpse of them out of my peripheral vision. And whatever they were, they were a foot shorter than me and very, very petite. So I was like, whoever this is, if they're a threat, they're not a threat to me. You know, I'm pretty sure I could just kick them in the legs and they would fall over and I could just run away. Like, they're not... the. the and I guess it's Texas. I was like, they might be armed, but then there's nothing I can really do here. Just don't, they just don't go anywhere where there would just be the two of you. Just stay in public where there's always going to be witnesses. But, you know, outside of that, there's really no harm here. There's no, no real threat. And so I came to the highway and the highway, there was a couple of stops. You know, you have to like stop at lights and wait to cross. And at this point, the person caught up to me and it was some girl and you could tell there was something about her like at the first stop like she kind of stopped and she was like aware of me but trying not to you know uh let on to it like she was behaving oddly so i was like okay i think i know what this is this is not a threat this is just uh, something of wasting my fucking time is what it's going to be so we crossed that one street came to the next light the other side of the highway. And she again, you know, uh, walked up, kept herself behind me and then walked up, stood next to me again at the second light. And she turned to me and then she engaged me and she said, excuse me, you are fabulous. And I just looked at her and I said, thank you. You're not so bad yourself, you know, um, but of course, I, uh, <laughs> I, I was like, okay, I guess I shouldn't leave it at that, you know. So I was like, okay, I'll try and make some conversation here. I was like, um, so I, I don't remember exactly how it went. Like, I think I asked her some question, and she was like, yeah, she gave me some answer, but she had a, she had headphones in, and she was suddenly very interested in what was on her headphones after I started engaging her, and. uh the last thing she said to me was, do you know where you can get cheap shots in this city? And I just kind of looked at her. I was like, I'm not going to try and conceal 
my condescension here. So I replied, is that what you're after tonight? You're looking for cheap shots? And she was like, yeah, I was like, good luck with that. Just want to make this very, very clear that, yeah, you might decide that I'm a weirdo because I, you know, don't know how to flirt with a woman, but I'm not interested in you anyway because you're definitely not on the same wavelength as me as far as what is entertaining. Shots are not something I do. I think it's a very, very strange thing to go out and look to do on a, on a, on a Friday night. But, you know, she kind of like took that and was like, all right, between that and the stuff I said before, she kind of was like, well, have a good night. And she sort of like cut away from me at the first opportunity, even though it probably wasn't where she was headed. She was like, I just want to get, I, I want to save face. I'm kind of embarrassed that I engaged this guy because this completely did not work. And uh, I got to get away. And so this is like, this is what my personality is. Thing is, I'm not really on the same social wavelength as other people. If you've met me, if you happen to know me personally, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, in many ways, I am autistic. And by autistic, I mean in the generic sense of the word. There was a time when that word meant something prior to autism being a thing, prior to it being some sort of disease. And it comes from the German autos. It just means self. It means socially isolated and withdrawn, which is generally what I am. And when I do engage, it doesn't quite land always. You know, it can be awkward for me and for the other person. Uh, you know, and that could be because I am autistic with a capital A or whatever. It could be because I have a touch of the disease, albeit a high functioning version of it. Can't be sure of that. I suspect maybe I do, but social interactions can be strange for me. It's uh, very weird. If I try and adapt myself to the world, it just doesn't come out right. I can hold a conversation. I can listen. And I can talk, but there's just something not quite right about it. And people pick up on that and they, sometimes they're not sure what to do with it. They're like, well, I don't know what's wrong with this guy. It could be something dangerous. So just going to you know, back off. It could be that people don't enjoy the way that I engage them. Like they just really don't enjoy the conversation and they, you know, decide to move on. Um, a lot of people do enjoy the conversation. Like I do meet people who really seem to enjoy talking with me, but I'm not sure that there are people who would like, I'm not sure that they like it enough that they would like to come home and, you know, hang out with me and talk with me. You know, they, they don't want to extend the relationship or deepen it in any way. This is almost everyone. It's one of these kinds of buckets or something like that. And so this is, this is kind of insulting because I, I, I can see like if you're, if you're a woman and you're not conventionally attractive, then guys are not going to approach you because they're superficial. Um, thing is I have like kind of a similar problem 
but it's it's a little bit different. So it's, the thing is, I'm tall and I am active, not athletic, but I do keep myself fit. And um, for a guy my age, I happen to have a lot of hair. Like my hair is now down past my shoulders. It's uh, it's pretty ridiculous at this point. So the thing is, there are elements about me that are like handsome. I am definitely no Brad Pitt. I am no model, but there's there's plenty of women who would find me attractive at a glance and might try and um, engage me. Now, between that, the way that I look and the way that I engage people in conversation, I'm very much like a bug zapper in that, you know, women kind of like are drawn to me, but as soon as they're in, they're kind of like, this was a fucking mistake. I should not have done this. This is, this is the whole story of, uh, this is what happened with the girl in Austin. This is what happened with the girl uh, from the train in San Francisco. We end up on a date after like, uh, you know, hour and a half. She's like, no, no, I don't know what's wrong with you, but we're not doing this anymore. Like whatever this is goes nowhere past this point. Just resolutely. And so it, it's kind of like if you're a woman who's not attractive, yes, men don't approach you because they're superficial. Um, women approach me. Um, let me see. How do I phrase this? The thing is they approach me because they are superficial. Yeah, they're, they're acting on a superficial information, but they end up rejecting me for deeper reasons, which I don't know is actually, I feel like that's more insulting than if you're just not getting hit on as a, as a girl who's not conventionally attractive. Because what women are saying is like, basically like, yeah, you look nice. You look nice enough for me to come over and try talking to you, but your personality is dog shit. It actually is an insult that kind of cuts deeper um, than just nobody paying any attention to you at all. Or having, having to struggle, having to like prove yourself, having to get yourself out there. Um, yeah, this is, this is largely why even when it's a woman I might find attractive and might think that there's something there, I don't bother engaging. There's no reason to. You know, I can get all the signals. Person can like smile at me just a certain way, make eyes, kind of look at me and smile and say, yeah, I like you. I don't follow up on these anymore because I know where it goes every time. And of course, I know what you're thinking. Like there's probably been some times when it wouldn't have fallen through that I didn't bother pursuing it. And for this reason, you just got to pursue it and you got to take the rejection every time. Again, I don't really see the motivation. But anyway, I don't say this to complain. I'm just like saying, hey, this is kind of what happens in my life. This is where I'm at. If you can relate, uh, I hope it gives you a little bit of comfort that you're not alone in dealing with uh, dealing with this, you know. So that's kind of where I'm at. I uh, I go out and people engage me for one reason or another sometimes. And it usually doesn't pan out because... 
what I'm thinking about most of the time, or what I use in conversation is just uh, not general interest. And the weird thing is, even if it is general interest, like I mentioned that I'm learning how to cook, you can talk to almost everyone about cooking. Almost everyone does some version of that. You can say like, hey, I tried this recipe, I did this thing, and here's how well it worked. Um, even if I try and tap into that wellspring of conversational material, for some reason, it just doesn't quite land. And part of me kind of wonders, I, I wonder what it is I'm doing wrong, and I kind of wish I could fix that. But at the other time, I've had such poor experiences adapting myself to the world that I'm really remiss to try and even do that. I'm really okay just sort of being home alone or going out on walks by myself and being amongst people. That, that seems to be good enough for now. That seems to be satisfying whatever social needs I have. So that's where I'm at. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that that's, there's that. And, um, yeah, I don't know. Before I get off of this, there is the whole question about, I wonder if I am asexual. Because I can't be sure. There's always that little bit of nagging doubt that I sort of have in my head that says, well, maybe you haven't experienced the right thing yet. Maybe you haven't met the right person. Maybe you've, um, maybe the people you've met the last few years have just been looking for something else. So they reject you in, you know, a very blunt, but polite way. Or it ends up being somebody who's fairly manipulative and has a bunch of problems themselves. And this has just turned you off to the whole idea. And your brain has just said, really, it would be easier if you just didn't bother with this at all. Maybe there is something I haven't dealt with, or maybe I just haven't met the right person yet. Those are both possibilities. But the only way to explore that and figure it out is to go out and start experimenting, to start engaging. And the thing is, if you're not interested in sex, who gives a fuck? You know, why would I bother trying to go after something that I don't feel that I want? On the off chance that I might want it and just don't know it. Kind of a chicken and the egg problem. Don't quite know what to do with that. That's the particular impasse that I'm at. And uh, I don't think about it a whole lot. But talking about it here because that's where the conversation has gone. To shift gears entirely, because I think I've harped on this enough for the last, what has it been, an hour? Talking about, I, I, I don't, I think I'm asexual. On the whole cooking front, I recently got a blender. A uh, ninja blender, actually. I, I, I had one of those before on loan from somebody. And... It's a very, very nice blender. They're, they're very, very good blenders. Like they're, they're kind of like tall, skinny food processors with, um, not quite all the bells and whistles that a food processor would have. A food processor has certain appendages. They got that 
thing on top you can feed food into and push it down through various things that spin and slice it to certain, you know, thicknesses or whatever. This is just like it has one set of blades that, uh, you know, are, st- you know, stacked. Um, and uh, tried making salsa. I've been making salsa with it, like restaurant-style salsa, and just been roasting. Um, what I do is I roast Roma tomatoes, a quarter onion, a couple of Fresno peppers. Fresno peppers are perfect for this, perfect level of spice and flavor. And, uh, you know, some cloves of garlic, even with the skin on. And, uh, roast those on the stovetop, maybe 20 minutes. This is, this is the first time I've actually used, that was the first time I used a cast iron pan. I finally broke ground using one of those things to roast vegetables for the salsa. So I roasted those up, threw them in this blender with a whole bunch of cilantro, a little bit of lemon juice. Perfect, perfect salsa. Um, easy as pie. And, uh, delicious. Kind of like one of those, uh, one of those ones you get in a restaurant. It's spicy and it's, uh, thin. Like it doesn't have big chunks of tomato. It's just blended down to very, very fine. Finely blended. I don't even know how to say it. You know what I'm talking about. You know the salsa that I mean. And I tried making hummus. And hummus, I, so there's a few things about hummus. I went around looking for the ingredients. And it took me a very, very long time to find tahini. Because you go into any supermarket, the challenge is figuring out where stuff is in that particular supermarket. I'm in the habit right now of shopping at Whole Foods because it happens to be the first place I went when I came to Boulder. Um, And I happen to know, like, my parents shopped at Whole Foods online this whole past winter. So I know the stuff that I want and like, and can go there and get it very, very easily. I know where it is in the store. I'm trying to like transition over to something local. Like in Boulder, the local thing is King Supers. And if you've ever heard of a King Supers outside of Colorado, it may be because there was a, if you heard about the shooting in Boulder that happened maybe six months ago, earlier this year, early 2021, there was some guy who I think was Muslim who was pissed off about being discriminated against in, you know, he was disgruntled and he went and started shooting up. Uh, he started shooting people in the King Supers parking lot and ended up going into the supermarket, killed a bunch of people, injured a whole lot more, and eventually turned the gun on himself, that whole thing. That happened at a King Supers uh, in South Boulder. Um, I do remember hearing about that and thinking, yeah, that's that's Boulder. That's my town. That's, that's the city I visited and I loved, and I'm sorry that that happened there. Um, but I'm trying to, like, switch over to that uh, King Supers. But anyway, I, I went to every grocery store in town looking for tahini, including Whole Foods. I had no idea where it was. I went to, like, the ethnic food section, went to, like, the, um, whatever, the condiments section. Everywhere you could think. It's kind of like, it's a guessing game. You're like, where is this? Like, how do they categorize it? So what is it next to? And that I know where it is. So, I mean, I I came to find out that that is actually sesame butter. It goes by that name. And so I was like, okay, I haven't looked at the nut butters. 
go to where the peanut butter is, which is in some weird place in the Whole Foods where I live. I, I don't know why it's where it is. It's like between like the, the water, like the bottled water, canned water aisle and all the holistic, you know, essential oil stuff. Like it's just, it's not where you would expect it to be. It's not, but I went there and then I found it. I found the tahini and yeah, so that was item number one. Item number two is that I actually wanted to do it right. When I try and cook these days, I'm not looking for shortcuts. There was a time when if I wanted to make a recipe that it called for diced onions, I'd have gone to Safeway and bought a box, a little package of diced onions and taken them home and used those in the recipe. Cause I was like, I just don't want to learn how to use a knife. Um, these days I dice the onions. And when it came to making hummus, I was like, when I try this, I want to use dried beans. I want to start as close to scratch as I can get. Uh, you know, Carl Sagan once joked that if you wanted to make an apple pie from scratch, you would have to first invent the universe. There's a, there's a, there's a point you have to start, you know, along the continuum somewhere. Um, but I wanted to try making really good hummus as, as best as I possibly could. And of course, what people tell you is you should start with. Uh, dried chickpeas. And so I went everywhere in town looking for dried chickpeas and I found them nowhere. I always found like the dried beans, dried black beans, dried pinto beans, nothing. So the first time I tried it, I, I bought this, some canned, you know, chickpeas. And I was like, well, I'll just, I'll just use, I'll just use these, you know, as a, as a Hail Mary. Uh, came to find out that chickpeas and garbanzo beans are the same goddamn thing. It's, it's two different names for the same exact plant that produces the same legume. They're identical. This is the thing about the culinary, like jumping into cooking and trying to put together recipes. This is what screws with me. I went to make drunken noodles and they called for scallops and scallions. I was like, well, what the fuck are those things? Okay, scallops are small red onions. Some varietal of red onion, I think, if not just red onions that have been bred. Is that what a varietal is? I don't even know. Um, and scallions are just green onions with a different name. It's like, why do we have these, like, sim links? To, like, I just, uh, I want to know, like, what? don't give me the aliases. I don't know why we need the aliases. It's just one thing. Let's just call it one thing. But anyway, everywhere that I went in town had dried garbanzo beans. They just weren't labeled as dried chickpeas. So, you know, it's just this, I don't know. It's, it's the culinary world trolling me. It's all about me. Anyway, so I eventually cracked that particular nut <clears throat> and, uh, yeah, got some dried chickpeas. Um, I followed the instructions of a, uh, some girl on YouTube. If you're interested in looking it up, the video was called how to make the best hummus of your life. And the girl who did it, she has like some cooking channel, um, on YouTube and she's like, Funky vegan chick or something. I forget. I don't remember what the account is. Anyway, that name should be enough. You go searching for that, you'll find it. Um, 
um, yeah, so what, what she did is she soaks the dried chickpeas in water for eight hours before she starts cooking them with baking soda. And when she cooks them for like 30 to 45 minutes, she puts baking soda in the cooking water as well. Um, this is meant to soften them up, kind of break them down. And uh, so I did that. And the other thing that she points out is that what can make hummus very coarse are the chickpea skins. So that seemed to make quite a difference to me. I've been trying this, and if you actually go through and, like, if you peel the chickpeas, and some recipes will tell you to do this. They say, once the chickpeas are cooked, peel the skins off of all of them, which is very, very painstaking. I don't think I quite got there. Um, I did what she suggested, which is just kind of, like, kind of manhandle them a little bit. Like, you just not too rough, but you want to get to the point where, like, the skins sort of start to separate. You can grab the beans and pull the skins out. And if you remove the skins and you're just cooking the innards of the beans, that makes a world of difference. Um, <laughs> yeah, that is what I would, that's what I would suggest. So, um, yeah, and the other thing I tried was that she said, if you really want to make your hummus over the top, she, uh, you know, seasons some oil. Um, like once you have the, the actual hummus, put that out on a plate and then put some oil in a pan, you know, put some lemon zest in there, or lemon peelings and some garlic. <clears throat> and then once that oil is warm, pour all of that, like kind of drizzle it on top. And then you can put like some, you know, chopped up parsley and uh, I think paprika or smoked paprika is the red spice that restaurants tend to put on top. You do that with sort of lemony, garlicky oil and, yeah, parsley and, and paprika. That is, when I made a plate of that, I was sitting there eating it with warm pita bread. I was like, this is, I could have gotten this in a restaurant. I've been in restaurants and had worse hummus than this by far. Um, just passing that on. I've been, I've been wanting to learn how to make hummus for years, but, you know, um, I don't know. The problem with cooking is getting started. You need, you need like so many tools and so many spices. You have to like invest, you know, I don't know how much money, like a few hundred dollars at least. So you have to have like a base, like a foundation of stuff you can start with. Otherwise you're just going out and buying stuff piecemeal for one recipe. You try it once and then you have all these ingredients, which you never, you know, use again. That's what I've always done. I like, I want to try making hummus, you know, find one recipe on YouTube that just happens to show like some way of doing it. it may not be the best. You, know, you don't find the best one. Go out and buy all the things you need, a food processor and, uh, you know, the spices and stuff. And then at the end, it's like, well, I tried that once. That's enough for me. Cooking is not a habit. It's just something I wanted to try once as a sort of diversion. Uh, now I've got this food processor and I don't know what to do with it. I guess I'll just keep it around in my closet for six months to a year and then eventually get rid of it when I move. That's the way I've done it in the past. I'm trying to make cooking a habit so it actually makes sense for me to um, figure out how to do it properly over time, experiment, and actually use everything that I own. I want to hang on to it. Owning nice things is a... Uh, 
something I'm trying to do. But yeah, I would definitely suggest that. Um, listening to my neighbor. So the thing is, if you're if you're going shopping for a place to live, there's a few lessons that I have learned. There's a question that sometimes I see on one of the dating apps, and it's uh, something I will never do again, dot, 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 fill in this blank. My answer to that question would be very, very simple. Never live in an apartment building anywhere in a unit where you are not on the top floor. This is part of the reason I didn't like living in Mountain View, California, because when I lived there for just under a year, I ditched my lease early. Um, there was a family that moved in above me about a week after I moved in, and they had a newborn baby. And they were sleep training the newborn baby, which I guess means that when it starts screaming in the middle of the night, you just let it go on screaming and crying until it, I don't know, cries itself out or something. I assume that's what it meant. They mentioned to me, they came down and like gave me a box of chocolates. And we're like, sorry for the noise. We just moved in. Uh, please don't hate us. Here are some C's candies. <laughs> we're sleep training our, our baby. And uh, yeah, but the thing is, I could hear everything. The baby was like kind of the least of it. You know, it would wake me up in the middle of the night and I would just fall right back asleep. I'm kind of okay with that sort of thing. Um, but it was like everything else. If they were watching television, I could like hear all of it. If they were talking, I could almost make out the words they were saying. Like it was so audible. I was kind of like, this is like, this is almost a privacy concern. And I knew that it went both ways. And like, so the times when I would wake up in the middle of the night and couldn't fall back asleep, I'd be like, well, I. I, I kind of feel bad going out into the living room and turning on the TV and watching it because it's it's two in the morning. They're clearly asleep. It's going to wake them up. It, noise from the neighbors is like annoying, but I also don't want to be an annoyance. I'm aware that things go both ways, and I don't like feeling hindered in how I live because I might be disturbing the people that live next door or above me. So, I mean, apartments tend to be pretty shitty as far as how they're constructed you know they just the, the quality of the construction is never really up to snow um, what i learned moving to san francisco is that i actually rented a condo and condos when people build those things they're aware that people are they want to entice people to own these things and they're essentially apartments i really don't know why you would buy an apartment to own and you know, i once had a co-worker ask me like so the condo building you live in in San Francisco, like if it burned down, what would the owner get? Would they divide up the land that the you know high rise used to be on and he would get like two square inches and everybody would get like some, like that's what they would then own? And I was like, I, I think the insurance might get them to rebuild it and they'd get another unit or something in that, in that case. But it's a, it's a funny question. I don't really know. So they, they, have, to, they, have, to, they have to put better quality of construction into condos than they do apartments. And a lot of that involves soundproofing. So when I was in San Francisco, 
I could hear nothing my neighbors were doing. I, I know that they were watching TV. I know that they were listening to music and talking loudly. I knew this was going on, on all sides of me, um, just because I, I was aware that people were living there and they weren't, uh, they weren't mimes. So the thing is, I never heard anything from any of them ever. If I went outside and, you know, their windows were open, I could hear something then. But outside of that, no, not so much. Uh, there was there was a few times when I could hear somebody in the unit above me, like, hammering. Like, I think that they had a piece of wood on the floor and they were nailing something into it. And I could kind of hear taps. But outside of that, it was, it was, I don't know, it was soundproof. It was as close to soundproof as you could get. It was perfect. And so whenever I look to rent now, um, and that's really all I look to do, I'm always looking at condos. If I see apartment buildings, I'm just like, you know, I've been there. I've been 20 years old. I've lived in those things. I understand why they're cheaper. I don't want to fucking bother. It's a whole headache. I just, I, I feel like I've earned my way into a, some aspect of the middle class, like some layer that doesn't need to live in crappy apartment buildings where you can hear everything the neighbors are doing. Um, so I now rent a condo and it's on the lower level. Like it's on the lowest possible level. And actually things are very, very soundproof. I have neighbors on either side of me and I have a neighbor above me and I can't hear anything that they do. If they're playing music, watching TV, which I know that they are, I am not aware of it. Ever. Now, the one exception to that is the guy above me. Now, the floors are constructed in such a way that I cannot um, hear him listening to music or watching television. It's soundproof in that way. But his footfalls, I can hear him walking. And sometimes this bothers me. Usually it doesn't. You know, if I just hear them walking, it's just like you hear somebody up there and you can hear them stepping. Like that's kind of expected. Like, I don't think you can hear me. So that, that's, at least there's that. Whatever I'm doing, he's not aware of it. The problem is, is that I've seen him before. He's, he's not, uh, I don't know. I think he's like maybe just a little bit younger than me. I think he's like early to mid thirties. Um, but he happens to be a guy that when he walks, much of the time, he just doesn't walk lightly. So he's a stomper. And it's, it's, it's actually kind of confusing to me. When I first moved in, there would be, t I could hear him walking, it would be fine, but then I would hear him stomping. And the stomping would be so loud, like it would shake everything in my unit, like stuff would rattle on my counters. I could feel the floor beneath me shaking and I could hear his footfalls very, very heavy. And he was walking very quickly. So I was like, well, it's not a, uh, you know, it's not a great big fat person lumbering around. It's just some guy who, for whatever reason, often when he walks, somehow manages to 
put the full weight of his body onto each footstep and it just rattles things and it makes a loud a bunch of noise. And I, I, I wonder how he is doing it. I, I really want to go up there and just sort of like make friends with him and hang out and watch him and I'd like watch him walk when he's making these loud noises. Like I don't understand how anybody can walk like that. The amount of noise that's coming down from the ceiling, from his footfalls, I can only make that much noise in my unit if I jump up. Like if I leap up into the air with both feet and come down with both feet. I can't make that much noise just walking regularly. It's a talent. And I I don't know how he's doing it. I really want to know. Like, I kind of want to go up there and just tell him, like, look, this is the situation, man. You might want to start walking lighter just because when you get older, like 10 years, your knees are going to be shot. I'm telling you this is a friend for your sake, man. Like, um, so it's just kind of confusing. But, you know, there are days where I'm like, I didn't get enough sleep and I'm irritable. And when it starts getting noisy, I'm like, this feels intentional. Like, I've heard you walk quietly. All of a sudden, you start walking loudly. I feel like you're just messing with me. Like, you know I'm down here, and you're intentionally causing noise. Like, my brain starts to go there, and I get frustrated, and i got to go walk it off. Um, that's the one complaint I have about this place. Um, and, uh, yeah, it can be annoying. If I'm trying to meditate, you know, there are times when the silence is almost mandatory, and suddenly you're jarred out of concentration because... Somebody stomping above you. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's all that's going on there. I haven't figured out what to do for Halloween yet. It occurred to me uh, that Halloween is on a Sunday this year, and I happen to have this long ass hair, which comes down past my shoulders. It looks, I kind of realized like I could actually go as Jesus this year um, as a costume and really uh, the hair would be taken care of. I guess I'd have to grow out a beard. I should probably start doing that now if I'm going to. I just need like a white robe and some, I guess, flip-flops. Whatever the, whatever the fucking Hebrews wore when they were, you know, under Roman occupation. Um, I was like, it would be pretty easy for me to just like pull that off with what I got. There were people in high school, um, a few of them who, you know, I used to have the long hair in high school and uh, I used to let my scrub grow out. And it was tall and slender, had the same build as Jesus is, uh, you know, traditionally portrayed in art. You know, I think this is somewhat washed in European centrism. Um, people used to call me Jesus. Like they would just that was the nickname that they um, liked to call me because they thought I looked like him. So I kinda got that thing going on. I was like, well, Halloween's on a Sunday. I should probably just I could just dress up as Jesus and go church hopping. Go walking around. Maybe even like uh, make some element of the costume like patently offensive, like just put some devil horns on, something small. It was something that's barely even noticeable, you know. You you wouldn't notice until like I walked past you, and then you'd be like, wait, 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 wait. Um, I don't know how that would go over. 
And I also don't know how much I care about getting up on a Sunday morning and going out in costume with the express intent of just, you know, annoying people. I feel like I got better shit to do, you know? This is the kind of crap you come up with when you're like 25. But at the same time, I am kind of tempted. You never know. I might actually make friends. Uh, I might actually meet some people um, because of it. You never know. Don't judge in advance. People can surprise you. But uh, yeah, if I, if I was going to do that ever, this would be the year to do it. I have the hair. I'm assuming I won't have it a year from now. And uh, I definitely won't have it whenever the hell the Halloween falls on a Sunday again. Um, and I'm in a town that I'm not going to, you know, I don't plan on buying a house here and setting down roots. I'm a transient. So I can kind of get a little bit of leeway there, you know. I look forward to next spring because next spring... It's going to be like, okay, I've got two or three months left. Anything I do, like if I screw up and suddenly like a bunch of people in town happen to know who I am because I did something massive and publicly humiliating, you know, or whatever, did something controversial and it happened to annoy some people who are people in this town. They work at City Hall or some shit. I don't know. I don't know what I would do and I don't know who these people would be. But, you know, if I'm worried about this, I'm not going to care next spring. I can just go crazy and go out and, you know, ruin whatever reputation I might have. And it doesn't matter because I'm going to be gone in a few months. Uh, most likely. We'll see how I feel. Maybe there's some part of me that doesn't want to go screwing with the locals because it's, um, I don't know, I feel like I might actually stay here. You never know. I suppose I might. Although to the to the charge of I was hoping to spend a year in Boulder and find somewhere within driving distance that I might be able to, you know, buy a house. I don't think that's actually uh, going to happen. Like, the thing is, there was a time when when Boulder was expensive because it was, it was the happen in town. And you could go outside of Boulder and you could find stuff like neighboring towns are like Longmont to the north. There's, um, I want to say Winchester, but that isn't it. Something that starts with a W. To the south, Golden, Colorado's to the south. It's down Red Rocks. Uh, they have the Performance Auditorium. And uh, is it the Performance Auditorium or a national park or both? I'm not sure what Red Rocks is. That's down, that's about uh, half an hour south of me in Golden, Colorado. Or if you go in the mountains, there's skiing towns like Aspen. Uh, of course, Aspen is expensive, but um, but there was a time when like Boulder was expensive and areas of Denver were expensive. But if you went outside of that, you could get property pretty cheap. Like it wasn't unreasonable. That is not the case anymore. Like everywhere around this area in central Colorado has gotten expensive. There's there's really nowhere you can go and buy a house where you're not paying a price that seems extravagant. It could be you pay a lot and it still continues to go up because really the market here is good. I don't see it falling. But, you know, getting in at the bottom, I think the opportunity for that is, is strangely past. It's even past other, like I've looked into like, okay, I just moved to Montana, you know, big blue sky state. 
you know, uh, doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of people living there. Let's, let's just go completely off the beaten path and try somewhere else. And even there, like things seem expensive. Things just seem expensive everywhere. You know, I, I didn't really realize this when I was looking in Sedona. Like Sedona is just a crazy new age town out in the middle of the desert. Why are houses here like three or four million dollars? Why do they start there? Do people who worship vortexes and make crap out of turquoise, like jewelry, like they really have this, where are they getting this money? Who are these people? And just there's a, there's a whole lot of factors, like, you know, the, I, I don't know what it is. I think it's a whole lot of things. I think I've talked about this. So there's no reason to, like, speculate. Uh, no reason to speculate anyway. I don't know. I, how How long... Do you put up with those conversations? I realize you can't answer this, but when you're in a situation and people are sort of talking, like, gee, I wonder, I wonder why that's the case, or I wonder why this is the case. And you're kind of like, you know, we've been talking about what could be true, just sort of the what ifs or the could be's for a very long time here. This conversation has gone on for maybe five minutes, and you realize that if any one of us pulled out our phones, we could start looking up answers to these questions. We wouldn't have to sit here just talking about possibilities. You know, and then if you pull out your phone and start looking things up, then you're just like the asshole who, like, pulls out their phone and ruins the conversation by sticking your nose into the phone. It's like, well, do you actually want answers to these questions, or do you want to just, like, guess at all these things because guessing doesn't seem like a very good use of time anymore we could use our brains for something better than trying to just like talk around guesses about answers we could just as easily look up i don't know at some point i stop abiding that and say you know what i'm just gonna i'm just gonna i'm gonna go to google I'm going to use the technology that's available to us. I realize I'm, I don't know. I probably don't do it as quickly as like millennials would. And again, I'm not even sure if I'm a millennial. I'm on the cusp of being a millennial. I'm like a really old millennial or a young, is it generation Y comes before millennials? Whatever it is before millennial, like, I, I, like I'm right on the border. I'm the year that like could be either one. <sighs> but yeah, um, I don't know. Some conversations are useful. Speculation is useful. And some are not. I suppose I'm proving my point here right now. I'm, I'm saying to myself, like, at what point does it stop being useful to speculate about a conversation? Let me speculate about this at great length. Granted, I can't look up the answer to this, but here I am trying to talk my way into an answer to a question that I just posed hypothetically. Yeah, I'm doing the very thing that I am expressing contempt for. I've become everything I hate. What has happened to me? God damn it. Um, still going thrifting it's kind of occurred to me that everything that I need 
from thrift stores I already own. And now I'm just kind of going for the, for the fuck of it. I'm going to like look for more clothes, which I definitely don't need or more stuff in the kitchen. Most of which I don't need. Uh, you know, when thrifting is really useful, like you can find good deals. Like there are some things I would never go to target and buy. Like I've gone into a target and bought a new crock pot. I think twice in my life, I would never do that again because you can go into thrift stores almost anywhere and they'll have, three or four of them. You find one of those that's in good condition, you can pick one up for like 10 bucks, easy. And it, it's it, good condition works just fine. There is no reason to go pay 40 or $50 for one of those things. Some things I wouldn't buy used, but um, where it really counts, I think is for singular use devices. Like I now have a garlic press which I I use whenever I need to like grind up garlic. Sometimes I just mince it by hand. I want to like work on my knife skills, but sometimes you don't. Sometimes you're making hummus and you just say, I want to I wanna just use this thing and get it done quickly because there's a whole bunch of other labor intensive stuff. Like peeling all the chickpeas that might take me 30 minutes. I'm going to cut some corners elsewhere. The thing is I would never go into a Bed Bath & Beyond or some kitchen supply place sur la table and pay like 12 or 15 dollars for a garlic press it's just a one use device like a singular thing you're only going to use for one thing sometimes i don't see dropping 15 bucks on that you go into a thrift store and you find something like a garlic press for 69 cents sold there you go there's a whole bunch of things a whole bunch of tools you can get that are useful in the kitchen and you can find them cheap at a thrift store there's a dish I've been making. It's like you cook, it's like you soften up a pepper. Like you take a pepper, poblanos work, bell peppers work. You just cut uh, the top off or cut a bell pepper in half. And then you, you cook them in a bath of water. And then you, uh, once they're soft, like partially cooked, you crack an egg and ham and cheese into it. And you just cook the egg inside of the pepper. It's fabulous. Uh, takes maybe 10 minutes. I've been doing it every morning and trying different peppers. I'm looking for like the, uh, you know, as peppers get, uh, hotter, the Scoville rating increases. They tend to get smaller, you know, generally speaking. So I'm looking for like the largest pepper I can get with the maximum amount of kick that you can cut open and still drop an egg and, you know, some cheese into. Uh, Poblanos seem to be the most readily available version of those. I've got some, not Serrano's, Anaheim peppers, which I'm, I think those are Anaheim peppers. They're very large. I'm going to try those next. Um, but I'm trying to find like, what's the spiciest pepper that will contain an egg? Or has, has somebody maybe grown some jalapenos that are just gigantic and would contain an egg? You know, I need to find a cultivar of some known spicy pepper that's just been bred huge. <clears throat> in any case, like when you go to put the egg in the peppers, like you, you, cook the peppers initially in a water bath and then you you drain off the water and so there's like a gizmo you can get it's just like a uh it's just like a curved like it has a handle and it has like a blade with holes in it it's not a sharp blade which is it's just a, a surface that's porous that you can like pour liquid out of a pan into the sink like you can drain water 
just by tilting the pan and the thing you hold, I'm not explaining this very well, but the thing holds this, it keeps the like vegetables or whatever else in the pan while you drain off the water. It's essentially a flat colander or strainer with a handle. And I got one of those for 69 cents. Again, wouldn't go into like a kitchen supply store and buy one of those for 10 bucks. There's no reason to. But it's a whole bunch of stuff like that. And yeah, there's some stuff that you want multiple of. Like my grandma had this thing, like she had her pair of scissors. And her pair of scissors was in a particular rack at a particular part of the kitchen. And when she ever needed scissors, she would go there and grab the scissors and, you know, use them and put them back. And the only time I ever saw her get angry and curse was when she like went into the kitchen for her scissors and they weren't there because somebody had used them and left them somewhere else in the house. I remember one time she went in there and she was like, ah, damn it. Just yelled out loud. And I was like, that was my, um, that was my grandmother, my 94 year old grandmother. Just, um, wow. Okay. But in any case, there's a very easy solution to this problem. I've got a pair of scissors in my uh, whatever knife block that I keep in the kitchen, and I use those for most everything. And I started realizing that I'm everywhere in the house, and I often need scissors, and i got to go to this place to get them. And I I try to always put them back uh, because, you know, I want to know where they are. So I was making a whole bunch of round trips you know, to and from and then back to, you know, like to this, uh, two round trips to this like knife block in the kitchen just to get a pair of scissors. And I was like, the hell with this. I can find good pairs of scissors for like 60 cents at thrift stores. So whenever I find a good pair of scissors, I just buy them and I just leave them everywhere. The goal is just to always have like, you can anywhere you're standing in my place, there's always a pair of scissors like within reach. You lean a little bit. <laughs> not quite that bad. It's something like that. You know, why not just own multiple of, this, of the things that you use a lot? They're cheap. It's the benefit of thrift stores. What I was really surprised by with thrift stores is I'm, I'm interested in crosses, as in crucifixes, like the, a cross you might hang on the wall or have sitting on the counter of certain style. I don't like them when there's like a little brass Jesus hanging on there. But just like, just a plain crucifix, just a cross. And it can be ornate. Some of them are kind of ornate. And, uh, as long as it's not too flowery or frou-frou, you know, I, I'm, I went looking for those. And those were actually surprisingly hard to find. Like I'd never really gone looking for them. And for, for the record, not for religious reasons. I just happened to like crosses for psychological reasons. Uh, more the kind of thing. It's a, it's an image you can meditate on and it tends to, uh, it's a symbol you can meditate on. I find that yields fruit. Um, but I went looking in thrift stores for, for crosses, for crucifixes, and I found that they were, they were very difficult to find. Like, I, I must have gone to like half a dozen thrift stores, like Goodwill, Salvation Army, the kinds of places where you would expect, they have all these tchotchkes, like little figurines of like whatever, you know, whatever you see in like an old lady's house. They have a bunch of this shit. There are no crosses. 
And maybe you'd find one every now and then, but it looked like one that some kid put together, you know, in, in, in kindergarten. Like he just had to do a craft project. So he like mosaic some crappy chunks of glass onto some piece of wood and then like put some kind of cement in between all of it. It's like, what is this? This is garbage. So I don't, I don't know if they're just in, in really, really high demand. And um, I don't know. But anyway, they're, they're, they're fairly rare to come by. Um, and I, I have found some thrift stores that uh, I tend to have more than others. Like Longmont is a city to the north of Boulder. It's maybe half an hour, 45 minutes north of me. Quick, quick drive. Um, and it's a small little town that is definitely um, more religious and more... It has more of the elements you would expect to find in a rural city in the middle of the country, I guess is what I would say. And that includes, among other things, a very strong religious base. It's the kind of city if you lived in and you weren't religious, it might cause you some social issues. Boulder is not that kind of town. I think you can, you can be a whatever here and uh, nobody's really going to give a shit. Okay, so let's see, where was I? The AirPods that I had, which I'm using with my iPhone to record this thing. Uh, the battery life has been getting lower and lower to the point where like they maybe will last on a charge for 40 minutes. It used to be like closer to an hour and uh, at least an hour and a half. From when I started doing these things like back in San Francisco, it, uh, I used to be able to go quite a bit. I could like record a four and a half hour podcast on just maybe three charges of the things. Now I'm like having to stop like every half an hour or so and uh, recharge them. Um, you didn't need to know that. Anyway, so yeah, I went up to Longmont, found that they have like, they've got, they've got a bunch of like crosses in stock and I found like the weirdest thing. It's like a stash cross. And it's, it's like a, it's a crucifix you can hang on the wall. It's fairly sizable. Like it's maybe 10 inches tall, it's brown, made of wood, but the front of it will slide up and open. And there's like a secret compartment in the long base of it that you could just hide stuff in. And I was like, I'm really bummed that I don't like have any contraband. Like I'm not a normal Colorado and I'm not going and buying marijuana and I got to stash it somewhere and hide it from my parents because it would be perfect for that. You could just hide like a little baggie with marijuana rolled up in it and a lighter and some papers and whatever else uh, people use. It would fit in there perfectly. And I, I kind of wonder what this thing was designed for because it can't have been, can't have been for that. Like what would, what would Christians need to hide in a cross that they might hang on the wall? Anyway, I'm sure I'll think of something good to stash in it. Maybe just something fun, you know, uh, like gummy worms, a bag of gummy worms. Somebody comes over, I'll offer them gummy worms. They're like, well, those, hold on. Let me go pull this cross off the wall and let me get you some. Uh, yeah, chocolate covered gummy bears. That's what I'll, that's what I'll do. But interesting novelty. You know, I, I kind of wonder about, so like when I made hummus, like I can go to Trader Joe's and buy some very good hummus. Like somebody pointed out, like there's, there's Trader Joe's at this 
Trader Joe's at hummus. See, it's getting late. Um, there's hummus at Trader Joe's. It's like Mediterranean. Um, I'm trying to remember what it's called. But it's like Mediterranean hummus. Uh, let me see. Mediterranean style hummus. Creamy and smooth. That stuff is excellent. Very, very good hummus you can go buy in a container off the shelf at a grocery store. Um, whatever they got at Safeway, screw that. Go to Trader Joe's and get this stuff. It's perfect. But if I, if I do like about eight ounces of dried chickpeas and like make hummus, I can make maybe two containers of that. Now one of those is about five bucks. If I actually price it out, like making hummus with the raw ingredients isn't a whole lot cheaper than that. Like the stuff that will go into it, it's not quite $10, but it's not a whole lot less than that either. And the money isn't even what I'm I'm wondering about. Like there's the time to do it. And when I'm done making hummus, like when I'm done, there's a whole lot of stuff I have to clean. I've got to clean the blades of the blender, the blender itself. There's a whole bunch of like tools I've used that I've got to like clean up. If I, you know, if I warmed up the oil with lemon and garlic, then I've got to clean that. I've got to clean the pan in which I cook the chickpeas. Like basically like my sink ends up with a whole bunch of stuff stacked in the drying rack. And it takes me a whole lot of water to wash this stuff out. And I, I wonder if there's like an environmental case to be made here. Like I understand if you make it in a Wherever Trader Joe's is getting their hummus, like that's being made in a factory somewhere, which is probably, it's, it's not like it's not causing pollution. It definitely is. It's using resources. It's using water and it's whatever. It's doing what it does. And then there's logistics of it. If I want to buy it from there, um, I've got to get it. Somebody's got to drive it in a truck. And then there's like the container that it comes in, which, you know, you could reuse to make your own hummus, uh, but people just usually recycle them, you know, and that's its own thing. But if I make it at home, like I end up like spending a whole lot of time and resources like cleaning. Like I, I go through a lot of water washing the dishes and, you know, all the stuff about the, you know, hummus having to make its way to the supermarket and that causing you know, pollution because of the logistics or packaging issues, that all applies to the raw ingredients. You know, the dried chickpeas alone come in a bag and they got to be shipped from somewhere to where I go to buy them. And then, then I use all this water cleaning things up. Like I, I'm sitting there like just using the little hose thing, uh, whatever it is on the sink that you pull out and you can spray Um I'm using that for a fairly extended portion of time to like get all of the stuff that's stuck to the dishes that I use. And I wonder if this is like less environmentally friendly. I'm not actually worried about this a lot. I do wonder if like doing all of this stuff yourself, this is actually typically the, this is the excuse I've used for years. Like I don't want to make my own hummus because Really, I think the whole, whatever environmental degradation may happen because of it, whatever resources get used, it's probably less of an impact if it's diffused across a whole bunch of 
containers of hummus that are being packaged in a factory somewhere. It's this centralized place. You know, they, they do stuff with the equipment to like whatever the chickpeas, they have to process them. It's this gigantic vat, but they make a whole lot of batches of hummus and then they, you know, wash this thing somehow. I don't know what's involved, but somehow they're doing all of this. Like that's got to be more environmentally friendly than everybody doing it for themselves at home, right? I don't know. I don't actually know the answer. Um, I do wonder what the answer is. Not, not like I really care. Like it's for me, it's more about the process. It's a nice way of using time. It's kind of like, well, I could pick up one of the many books I have and start reading and studying some intensely technical subject. Or I could go in the kitchen and just start throwing stuff around into food processors and, you know, pans and I could cook delicious things. It's a nice distraction. It's kind of like when I have a lot of work to do, when I, I have a lot of stuff staring me down, like when I have to like apply for jobs, it's like, okay, you got to put together a resume. When I have those sorts of things weighing over me, my house is always super clean. It's like, I, you know, I've got a vacuum again. I just did it two days ago, but I'm noticing that there's a whole bunch of, there's a whole bunch of dirt over in this uh, area. Like the front hallway looks a little, attracting some, attracting some grit. I better vacuum it again just to be safe. You know, I maybe, maybe I didn't get it all last time. I got to go organize all my shoes. <laughs> That's what I've been thrifting for like clothes and that includes dress shoes. I found you can get some very, very nice dress shoes. For not that much. And so whenever I find a decent pair that fits me, I have been picking them up. And so now I have, I have like a, a woman's amount of like pairs of shoes now. Like this is kind of ridiculous. I'm looking at them getting up to like 20. At, at some point, it's kind of like, are you really saving money? Like if you went and bought new shoes, you would buy one or two pairs for 80 bucks. You've now got like, 20 pairs that you bought for maybe $10 a piece. Yeah, you've got a whole bunch more. Do you need that many more? And did you really save any money by owning all of these? Like, it's, I don't know. Same, it's sim similar kind of question with the environmental impact of the homeless. Like, by thrifting, am I really saving money or am I just psychologically convincing myself that it's okay to spend a lot of money on a whole bunch of things instead of just buying, you know, stuff new that's nice? Probably a, probably a little bit of both. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I, I had a shoe rack. Like I said, when I was in San Francisco, I ended up, um, I didn't buy any furniture because it was a hassle to get furniture into my apartment building or condo place. So I lived there for two months without anything. And then I happened to catch a guy who was moving out and he just, he didn't want to, it was a hassle getting furniture out. So the best thing you could do was sell it to somebody else in the building. And I was like, you got me. I am, I am down. I will take your stuff. However crappy it is. That ugly ass rug you got in the living room. It's uh, okay. I, it's better than no rug. I'll let's do it. You know, furnish my old place for about 500 bucks. Furniture is absolute shit, but it gets the job done and it's way better and cheaper than, you know, going out and trying to do a piecemeal in several steps, getting it back into the building. But he sold me on a shoe rack. He had like this crappy little shoe rack. It was like plastic things you just sort of clap together. And, you know, it, um, I had that. 
in my closet after I got it from him for like the entire time I lived in, in San Francisco. And I, I, I had maybe two or three pairs of shoes. There was no reason for it. I remember he was kind of like, one day, you know, if you have a party, you know, it'll be handy because then your friends can like load their shoes onto. It's like, that makes sense. And I'd like to believe that one day I'm going to throw a party in this place. I'm in San Francisco now. It's not Palo Alto. Maybe people are more cordial and I'll make friends. No. It's the pipe dream. The whole idea that I'm going to like throw a party. Throw a party where so many people are going to come and take off their shoes that I need a dedicated shoe rack for such a thing. Anyway, his logic, it sounded good to me. It sold me on it. I was kind of like, yeah, I'll be optimistic and daydream. Let's get the shoe rack. Never needed it. And I remember taking it apart and throwing it out. I remember disassembling it by the garbage chute and tossing it down before I left and moved out of that building. And now, of course, I'm living somewhere with 20 pairs of shoes. I could really use that fucking thing now. And, uh, yeah, you never have what you need, right? At the Something like that. <laughs> um, okay, I feel like my brain is starting to dry up here. I wanted to uh, do a marathon session of this whole thing and just sort of start to cover a bunch of weird things that are going through my head. Uh, talk about, yeah, basically it's a distraction. I'm doing this because really I should be doing stuff for work that's due tomorrow afternoon. And I've decided the best thing to do would be to distract myself by talking to all of you, giving you all updates about, uh, you know, nothing that matters to anyone, none of you out there, but me. And, uh, you know, wake up uh, tomorrow morning and just sort of scramble in the morning to get the work done. I think that's more of a motivator. If I, uh, if I had spent time on it this evening, it would have been wasted, you know. What is it? It's Parkinson's Law. Work you have to do will expand to fill the time available to do it. So if there's a task that will take a day and you give yourself three days to do it, this is a work law. Uh, you will spend the three days doing it. You'll stretch it out and, you know, make yourself fill the time at work. Doing in three days what could be done in one, just because, well, why not? There's no reason to get it done in one. It'll just give you more work to do. It's kind of like that. Kind of like, okay, I know I have to present something uh, at work in roughly 18 hours. I could start now, and it would start eating into my time, and it would take you know, a whole bunch of time this evening and then tomorrow I would have to like keep adding to it and polishing it. Or I could just wait until three hours before it's due and frantically throw something together and you know, the result is not going to be that much better if I give myself a whole bunch of time versus scrambling. Scrambling might actually be better because it's a, you know, forced motivation, something like that. All this to say this is a rationalization for why I've spent two and a half hours uh, plus four or five sessions of AirPod charging time discussing all of these things with you. It's been great. Uh, I need to do more of this. I feel like it's been therapeutic. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit more about dreams at some point, but they're the people ask me like, so dreams are often very confusing things you have to interpret. And I've had some interesting dreams lately. I'm not going to talk about those. Don't worry. But 
I've had a few that are very, very simple. And the meaning is very, very obvious. And there's nothing to read into. It's just plain, naked, simple. I remember when I started doing this podcast back in San Francisco. Like the first day I did it, I loved doing it. And so I just recorded three of them in a row. It was like eight or nine hours of just me talking to myself. And after a month of being holed up in a one bedroom in San Francisco, going out for nothing but groceries and prescription medication, it was like, it felt so good to be talking to anything, even a device about whatever, just getting my thoughts out. Um, in some way felt so good. So I just, I, I did it a whole bunch that first day. And I, I did it a bunch the next day, but that first night after I did it for like eight hours straight and then went to bed, I fell asleep and I had a dream that I was in my place. Like I was living in my condo and I was just going about my day-to-day business and there were just microphones everywhere, just nestled all around. Like a closet was full of them. They were stashed between like Pairs of shoes on the shoe rack, which which I never used. But in the dream, there was... So that was very, very clear. Like, my brain was like, yeah, we really like this whole... You should keep doing this. Keep doing the microphone thing. And, yeah, Boulder is a a phenomenal town. Next time we talk, I hope I have, like, some stories about what I went out and did for autumn. I found out there was a corn maze about maybe 20 minutes uh, east of where I am. And, you know, pumpkin patch, you can go over and do those things. I kind of want to see if I can, uh, I don't know. It feels kind of weird. I don't know if I want to go wander through a corn maze alone, but I also don't know exactly who I could ask to go with me. That doesn't seem like a first date kind of thing. You want to go get lost in a cornfield uh, out in like a rural area with me. It's not even like a let's just go hang out as friends kind of thing. That feels like you don't know a person very well, I think you're justified in being skittish. But anyway, it feels weird to do it alone. I'm not sure I've been... So I... I, Yeah, I guess I... I don't know. We'll see. Okay. So I've been on a... I've been on an Andrew W.K. kick lately and I really liked his last album he just released a new one last month but the one that came before that I think it was released in early 2018 was really really good I really really liked it like the thing is his early works, if you've heard of Andrew W.K., you know he's the guy with the bloody face who writes songs about partying. It's it's kind of a hard rock pop sort of thing. It's sort of like if you think of pop music as being vacuous and really having no substance and just being like, hey, let's go out and have fun. Um, he's, he's kind of like a musician who does that. Like he's classically trained as a pianist, so there is musicality to what he does but essentially the lyrics are nothing more than let's just party and it's just heavy guitars and you know pounding drum beats 
And he goes to venues and people mosh to his music. And there's melodic elements to it because it's definitely, he knows how to put a song together. But it's not that complicated. It's not Bach. He can play Bach. I've seen him do it. Um, but it's, it's just sort of, let's just have fun and party, 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 party. You know, it's, it's very, very one note kind of thing is what he actually releases commercially and, you know, makes money off of, which makes sense. You know, feels like he's pandering. He's very, very good musician, but he's, he's just found a niche marketing wise, you know, which I guess what, what most musicians do. I remember Marilyn Manson was saying, you know, his whole idea kind of being like a, whatever, a shock rocker in the mid nineties, that was born of the question of, okay, they have all these gangster rap people who were making this really, really horribly offensive music that's of the rap genre for a certain crowd of people. He was like, can somebody do that in rock music and be successful? Can you like make really, really patently offensive rock music with offensive lyrics and it's heavy and it's meant to annoy parents. Can, can you, could you do that for a different kind of audience in a different way and be successful? All it was was him finding a niche out there and filling it. That's kind of like what Andrew WK does. But his earlier stuff, like he, I remember hearing like his party hard song, like it came out in 2000, 2001. It's like 20 years old now. If you've heard it, you know exactly what it is. It's, there's not much to it. It's fun. It's nice, but you don't, uh, I don't know. You don't put it on repeat and listen to it and get anything out of it. I don't feel like you throw it on at parties. His last album from a few years ago, which I think called You're Never Alone or You're Not Alone. I can never remember which one it is. There was actually a lot on there that was, it was good musically and the lyrics actually seemed to have some depth to it. Like you actually seemed to put some thought into it. And I was like, this is, there's vulnerability here. There's, there's reassurance that like he understands people are out there and they're in pain and they feel lonely. And this album feels like a response to that. And so it actually is the kind of thing that I would put on repeat. It's, it's, it's one of my favorite albums. If I ever get a record player and I want to go out and spend $40 on an album for some reason, this would probably be the first thing I would buy. I, I just love, I can listen to it start to finish. There's maybe one track I would skip habitually, but I, I love the whole thing. And there's even like an unreleased track on it. It's only available on the Japanese import version that you have to like rip off of a line somewhere. But that one is one of my favorites. I'm like, why wasn't that? It's, you know, you, there's a musician that's good when the music that they just throw away, they put on like foreign imports or they throw it on B sides or they just never release it officially. Like the crap they throw away because it wasn't good enough to get on the album is actually better than the stuff that you hear most other artists producing. Or you enjoy it more than stuff you hear. This is how you know you found somebody you really love. Um, but anyway, don't want to harp on him. But he just released a new album last uh, month. And there was a bit of a weird issue in acquiring it. Because now it's all digital. Like, I don't remember the last time I went out to a store and bought a CD 
because it was being released and that was like the, the most expedient way of acquiring it. I'm really racking my brain to try and figure out when the hell that might have been. It, I feel like it might have been in 2006. Like, what was my favorite band at the time released their, their final album? And I was like, yeah, I'll go to the store and buy it. But after that, I bought CDs because I wanted to. It's kind of like a souvenir, but not because I had to. I feel like it all went online after that. But in any case, I've noticed this this thing that starts happening with digital music. It, it happens on iTunes, and it happens in Amazon Music, where tracks on albums that you've purchased suddenly disappear. Have you noticed this? Like it just it just vanishes, and suddenly they're not there, and you. You go back and you look and you know it was there and you know you bought it. You know you paid for the whole album, but it's been a few years. But the, the, I guess some licensing agreement has expired or something happened with the, that track or those particular tracks and they just, they can no longer provide it for you under the terms under which you originally bought it or something. I'm assuming that's what the case is. And unless you've like downloaded it and stored it somewhere where they don't have access to it, where, you know, over a network, you know, Apple Music or um, Amazon Music can't find it on your device and remove it, like you don't have the file anymore. There, there is, there, there's an entire album of Andrew WK stuff that came out about 10 years ago and it was mostly instrumental. I really didn't like it all that much. I went back and I was like, I'd kind of like to listen to this again. All but one track had vanished in iTunes. And I was like, I know I bought this. Where the hell is it? So I went, I went on the file system. I, was, I looked for the files. The files had been deleted for the album. So I've noticed this. Like The older an album gets, like older stuff just tends to disappear. And there were some Tori Amos albums that I bought maybe 10 years ago. And I, I bought those through Amazon. I know that I did that. I remember that. And I downloaded them. And I have the downloaded versions. And that's what I have to use because for whatever reason, they're not available in my Amazon account, which is what I largely use for music now. It's like, why does this stuff disappear? Anyway, that's a question I wonder. But I went to, I went to get this Andrew WK album. And the week that it came out, before the Friday that it was actually officially being released, there were four tracks, just, you know, tracks four, eight, two, or 12, you know, something like that, that were available. You could buy them in advance, just those four. Or it said, you can buy the whole album now. We'll let you download these four, and then you get the other eight, whatever, when you know, the official release date comes around. And so I remember kind of hesitating. I was like, this comes out at midnight tonight. It comes out tomorrow, so it'll be released in eight hours. But I was like, I don't want to like buy the whole album now because I feel like something will go wrong. And I was like, I think I'm just being paranoid. Let's give it a try. What's the worst that can happen? You lose a few bucks. Uh, I was surprised at how badly things went. 
this was an album I had waited like six months to come out. And so I bought the four tracks and when midnight came around, I didn't see the four, like the additional, like the whole album didn't suddenly populate. And I went back to the page where they were, you know, selling the album and all the tracks were available. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to give this a half an hour or so. I'll go distract myself and come back. Did that, came back, still not in there. And so I was like, this is interesting. Can I just buy the additional tracks that, you know, haven't been released to me yet now? You know, I might get double charged. Maybe they, they already charged me for the whole album. You know, are they going to charge me if I, uh, well, they didn't charge me for the whole album. They charged me for the tax tracks that I bought. This is more detail than you need to know, but I, I'm just kind of curious if anyone else has had this experience. Like, so I, I went on and tried to buy the entire album. Like just, okay, I bought it before, but you're not fulfilling the request. So let me try repurchasing the whole album and just give me the whole thing now. And it said it couldn't process my payment information. And so I tried various ways of jumping around this, you know, like, and I ended up having to go to Apple Music and buy the album there. And it wasn't until a couple days later that I went on Amazon, I was able to rebuy the album. Like I had to buy it twice and it charged me for the entire album. Again, ignoring the fact that I had already bought four tracks in advance. Like it didn't take that into account. It just recharged. So this whole digital music thing is starting to get to me. Like it's starting, I'm starting to notice there's, there's cracks in its uh, fine veneer. I do remember how annoying it was to have to drive to a store and pick up a CD. And then it came to be, you had to like buy the CD, bring it home and rip it and somehow track all of these files somewhere you know, back them up on an external hard drive so you have them in the event of some sort of failure or some blah, blah, blah. Um, but I'm kind of wondering, like, there's still people that, there were people that did that. I don't think people do that anymore. There will come a time when we just have, everyone's getting music from, actually, this will tell you how old I am. The fact is, like, nobody's buying music anymore. No one is saying I want to buy this album and I want to download the files or access the files through some app. People are just using streaming. You, you pay $10 a month and you've got all the music you want, everything you want on Spotify. You own nothing. I, I'm, that's, that actually, that's probably why there are wrinkles now with the whole, you know, you buy your music and download it. They, they don't really want you doing that. I've noticed every time I open up Amazon Music, it's kind of like like a thing pops up. It's kind of like, do you want to subscribe to our monthly music service? I'm like, no, every time. I have to like find the close button, which they stash somewhere visually hidden, like somewhere in some corner of the overlay, just to close it down and get to the music that I bought. It's like, how long is this even going to be an option? How long until you have no choice, but you, you want the music, you have to just pay like a service or pay for a streaming service. It's like nobody owns anything. Like basically the music company, um, not the music, Amazon or Apple or whoever the fuck else, like they just own a license to let you listen to the music and you're, you're just paying for access to it. Now, again, I remember how annoying the whole CD thing was, but 
it feels like that's ultimately where we're going to be. I feel like I'm going to, first of all, I feel like an old, 40 years old, like yeah, I'm approaching 40. You can probably tell because I'm complaining. Like, this is not the way it should be. Um, but yeah, I feel like I'm going to get to be 50 years old, like 10, 20 years from now. And like the, the whole idea of owning music is going to be very passe. Like, why would you want to do that? And I kind of see the logic. I, I know that I'm being resistant to it, but I'm already kind of, kind of there. Like there was a time when I wanted to buy an album by some particular band or buy all of their albums because I wanted them because I really liked the band. I, I still have some of those, but they're very, very rare, you know, it's kind of like the music that I'm into nowadays is closer to, I don't know, you can picture the 90s. In the 90s, I used to buy Smashing Pumpkins albums because I liked the band and I wanted to hear everything that they ever did. Com contrast that to like Third Eye Blind, which releases an album and you can buy the album if you want, but you're really only buying the album for one or two songs that you like from the radio. The music I listen to now is much more like Third Eye Blind than it is Smashing Pumpkins. Like, I'm really not a devotee of music. And even if I am a devotee, like, whether it's Smashing Pumpkins or Third Eye Blind, like, I don't... It's not like I, I develop a long-term love for music. Whatever music I'm listening to now, with maybe one or two major exceptions, is not music I was listening to five years ago. That music wasn't what I was listening to 10 years ago. Like, I do cycle. There are some mainstays, but they're rare. I can actually see the logic in having a music subscription service. You want to listen to whatever you like then. And maybe sometimes you dip back into the past, but really, you have a music service that's good. You know, you just go on YouTube and listen to the stuff you want to hear every once in a while because you feel nostalgic. I don't know. So I don't know how long, how much longer I'm going to keep riding this train. I think it'll probably just become more and more inconvenient, like Apple Music and whatever else you can use to actually buy music files. We'll just, I don't know, it'll get so annoying to do it that way that I'll just end up saying, you know, I'm just going to pay $12 a month for Spotify or whatever. I don't know. I'm one of those like people who tries to be a Luddite and drag my heels because I don't want the new thing to be the only thing. Because once the new thing is the only thing, then the new thing becomes very, very expensive for everyone. So if you're out there and you're calling me an old fogey because I haven't jumped the, you know, onto the Spotify wagon and I'm still buying music files, you're welcome. I am keeping the competition alive and I'm keeping the music subscription streams, yeah, these music streaming services honest. You are paying probably half of what you would be if it weren't for people like me. So you want to call me old, old fart, you go right ahead. You're welcome. <laughs> I gotta say, regardless of how, you know, like, there's definitely like a convenience to iTunes. Like go back to even like 2005 and it's like, the whole new idea was that you have all of your music suddenly in one place and you can just scroll down and click on what it is you want to have play. 
I remember when that was novel. When I was in college, I had a, I had a roommate that I was living with. Um, I almost said his name. Anyone listening to this probably knows who he is, but, um, but he showed me like his, his iPod. It was like the original, the first ever iPod. And he was like, yeah, you just, I have all of my music on this one little tiny box. I can just navigate through it and listen to anything. And at that point, I was still like using a Discman in my car. I was like, well, I have to have CDs and I can only put in one at a time. And if I want to skip to something else while I'm driving, I'm kind of out of luck because I'd have to stop the car and like, you know, open up this Discman and like find the CD and then like somehow find the track that I want. Like it was, yeah, that was life 18 years ago. I remember that. Now that I think about it, I don't really don't want to remember it, but that was annoying. But at the same time, I kind of like the idea of having a record player because I'd like the idea of just taking an album and throwing it on and you just let it go. There is a kind of convenience to the way things are now. Like I have a little Bluetooth speaker that I can stream audio from my phone to. And... That's that's great. Like all the music I own, for, it's, it's on my laptop or my you know phone, and I can I can basically bring it up in an app and play it, and it's just it's it just plays in my you know in my apartment where I live, and that's great. But there are definitely times where I just kind of like I want to throw something on that I like, and I want to just let it play and on the off chance that I have to stop it or I want to skip a track or something I miss being able to just walk over to the device that is playing the music and just hitting the stop button or hitting the forward to next track button or you maybe you got to take the needle off and move it forward you know but there's there's like a thing that's not your phone and not your computer. So you don't have to like do the whole problem of program switching. You're, you're using your phone and your computer for other shit. And if you want to suddenly like adjust the music, you have to go find the program on your computer that's running, open it up and, you know, stop it there. Like there's kind of a burden there that I don't like. I kind of wish I still had like even an iPod. Like an iPod that has all your music and it's in a dock. If there was some way of just like, I don't know. I don't know what the ideal is, but it's, it's similar with television too. Like this is actually complicated for my parents. My, my parents have trouble with this. I don't, but the whole idea that you have to like open up a device that's attached to your television and it's got apps on it and you have to install these apps and sometimes they're buggy. So you have to uninstall them and reinstall them and you have to open those up and you have to browse through something that you think you want to watch and you have to try starting all these things. This is a whole different interface from like just there's cable TV. You turn it on. Stuff is playing in progress. And you, you just, you scroll through, you, you flip through the channels until you find something that you want. 
It's just you turn on one thing, you flip through channels, and that's it. Now, I'm not saying there's not drawbacks to that, but I kind of miss just being able to turn on the television and maybe you throw in a DVD and you watch that. Or you just, you know, you watch something on cable, you flip until you find something that's interesting and you watch that. There's this whole thing now where there's like, you have a device that takes apps, they update them every three months so the interface changes. They use them on like the cheapest possible hardware they can so there's a lag. You hit a button to scroll down and check things and there's a lag. So you're like, did it receive my click or did it not? So you hit it multiple times and it ends up scrolling down more times than you it ends up registering more clicks than you intended it to, blah, 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 etc. I could go on complaining about this, but I miss just like you turn on the TV and then there is stuff. And you can navigate up and down through the stuff. You know, I kind of wonder how long this, like, I have, I have an okay time with the new things. I, I, I try to wonder what the future is going to be like. You know, when... Me having the adeptness with technology that I do, I can, I can figure out almost any system. I'm, I'm a software developer, so there are drawbacks to software and like the interfaces of them. I know why those are there. So it doesn't bother me as much because I do that and I fuck it up myself. So I give other people slack when I see it, but I understand why these bugs exist. I'm tolerant of it. And usually I can understand the engineering logic that goes into it, even if it's engineering Illogic, which more often than not is what it is. But I'm able to like go in and kind of reverse engineer the way something is supposed to be used, even if it's not intuitive. I wonder at what point that's going to stop working for me. You know, at what, at what point things are going to, like, how could things advance? How could things change and morph so much that one day I wake up and I realize there's all this stuff like there's there's a whole bunch of like ways that you have to know how to navigate the television and the music programs in order to get to the shit that you want. And I'm just going to look at it and say, I don't know. And I don't care anymore. Like I, I may, I'm just not going to listen to music and not watch TV. I'm just going to go read a fucking book. And hopefully it's going to be an actual physical paper book and not one of those. Uh, yeah. Kindle's e-reader devices definitely have all the same problems that I've been uh, talking about. I remember when this first came up. Like, this was when Kindle's first came out. It was 2009. There was an incident where a bunch of people bought 1984, and the publisher that published this e-version of 1984, they had to unpublish it. So they went in and removed it from everybody's devices and gave everybody who had purchased it a refund. And people were like, well, Jesus, I, I don't care about the money. I'm glad I got the money back, but you could just go in and like rip stuff off my device that I've bought. And there was no shortage of like, you know, tech journal articles at the time that pointed out it's ironic. This was 1984 that happened to be the book that this, this first happened on. Um, I don't know. I wonder about the future and the future is probably pretty awesome. It's probably awesome in ways I can't even imagine, but. You know, there are times when, there are times when the new stuff, uh, kind of, I guess is kind of annoying. 
And it didn't used to be annoying in quite this way. So, I don't know. That's probably a good, good a time as any to cut myself off. Yeah, I'm up to three hours here. This is like going old school. I haven't recorded one that is like three hours since I was, I think, back in San Francisco. It's been over a year. So, hey, getting back to my roots and talking at great length about nothing for long periods of time to nobody. And if you've listened this far, you're not nobody. Thanks. This has been great. Uh, hope you got something out of it. Um if you want to give me any feedback, if I pissed you off at any point, please don't hesitate to try and find my email address somewhere. Uh, take care of yourselves. Um, yeah. And hug someone you love. Do that now. Um, yeah, don't wait. Now, anyway, take care of yourselves. Till next time, this is Jim signing off. You be well. Cheers.